I have never, ever ridden a hill not wide frigging open. Full tuck, holding my breath, whole thing. Okay, welcome back to the Venom Skate Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Madum, as always. Today's episode is with uh, Captain America himself, Rick Clutie. And I'm very pleased to bring this one to you guys. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, that uh, Rick seems like a figure who's been just kind of there in my whole downhill life thus far. Uh, but I recognize that this podcast has an audience that's a little bit more international, maybe, than uh, especially the California or local kind of North America scene, which is where Rick has been mostly for the last 10 years. Uh, and this one has been really important to me because I want everyone to get the chance to know Cludie a little bit. And I feel very sorry for those of you who haven't gotten to spend time with him at a skate event or, or elsewhere, and hopefully you will get to in the future. If you happen to be uh, spending a lot of time inside right now, I would, as always, recommend that you check out the YouTube series, uh, Jeff Grosso's Love Letters to Skateboarding. That's been a big inspiration for me for a long time and kind of educated me about a lot of where regular skateboard roots came from. And this episode with Cludie is absolutely a love letter that I want you guys to know why he is who he is and where he came from and why he brought the energy that he did to the sport for so many years. As always, Rick is full of stories and life and happy memories and a couple of stories we've even cut out from this episode to save for a kind of a stories from the road episode that we're going to be putting together later. But, you know, to give you a feel for how he feels about skateboarding, we had to cut this down from about four hours of recorded material after we went out for breakfast and chatted too. So without, you know, taking up too much of your time, Enjoy this stuff. If you're spending a bunch of time inside, I hope I can come up with some podcast episodes for you to keep you occupied and keep you excited about skating, even if you can't see your buddies. But keep up the good work out there, everybody, and we'll see you later on. Thanks. I, I don't know. Pages got full, I guess. I don't know. I just kind of quit doing it. But I got a whole box of, like, memories and pictures. and Just you coming. Yeah, man. I found it in one of my boxes, man. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, looking through this shit, man. It's all good stuff. All right, so I know. So Sherry said, "Don't go, don't be too, uh, don't go too hard about names and dates, and we'll be all right." So, but what I do, I do want to try to go through. Give me like a little bit of a chronological order on your career, and because that usually just kind of tends to lead us to good stuff to talk about. But I want to everybody. I just want to know how you found skateboarding and what your first, you know. What was your first skateboard? When did you first see skateboarding? Where did it go from there? Because I, I want to talk about barrel jumping and kind of how you found every aspect of this. So, so start me off. What was your first skateboard? If you My recall. first skateboard, I remember most of them. Um, some things I do remember, some things I can't remember. Yeah, whatever. Um, my first skateboard, my grandfather made for me in North Carolina. I was probably eight years old, nine. So you're from North Carolina? North Carolina. Okay. Swansboro, a beach community, a fishing community, and my grandfather built shrimp trawlers in his front yard. Okay, so that explains why you're a NASCAR fan. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that goes fast, you can draft. I'm in. All right. Um, I won my very first competition downhill. So what, so what year would that have been thereabouts? Well, um, Calvin, right behind you, see that trophy? Right 
it, you can pull it out. Um, 41 years ago. That's 1979. That's fantastic. So, yeah, I've been on a skateboard since I was close, old enough to walk, really. My brothers uh, had, uh, we had this church hill we used to always ride down with steel wheels. And my brothers broke off, um, they had a two by four steel wheels from roller skates that they nailed on with 16 penny nails. And they nailed um, a wood going upright and then one across. So it was basically a scooter. Yeah. Well, I was too small to hold the scooter because my brothers were bigger and older. Right. So uh, Billy, well, he's my favorite brother, he, um, he ripped off the handle so I could ride it. So I started riding it on my butt because if you hit a crack with the steel wheels, it's all bad. Uh, and then I started standing on it, and the rest is pretty much like after that I was hooked. Right. I mean, that's like the, the, the classic skateboard origin story to a T, like the steel wheels, made it as a scooter, broke the handle off. Like, that's how the skateboard came to life. So that's awesome. Yeah, um, you know, the 50s and then the 60s, and 60s and 70s was kind of my era. Yeah. And, um, you know, as I got older, um, skateboards started being made. And then they had these wheels. That, they gave us some clay wheels that we would put in gasoline because the clay was so hard. Oh, so it would soften them up. It would soften them up. And we had this one hill, it's called Corbett's Hill. Steeper and I mean, steep, and then it was kind of shot uphill. But beside it was an oyster bed, because we water was everywhere around us, you know, like rivers and oceans and, you know, I'm deep south type stuff. And uh, you, you, a lot of people would eat it because, you know, the trucks and clay wells. Yeah, and, man. You know, you get almost to the bottom and your bearings would fall out because they were all open. Ball, yeah. And then you'd go into the oyster bed. Oh. People come out, cut the shreds. We were only like 10 years old, but 12 just, years you old. You get laced up by an yeah, oyster. The older bed. the kids wouldn't try it, you know. <laughs> so, you know, and the whole process of the skateboard, you know, um, just the idea it didn't have brakes turned me on beyond words, you know. Because the feeling of going faster than you can run. Right. At that point, depending on how fast you think you can run, you're committed. Yeah. You I, have so, to make it to the bottom. So tell me if you agree with me on this. This is something I've been pushing around for a little while, is that I think there are three speeds on the skateboard that really matter, that, that feel different than the other range. So the first one is faster than you can run. That's, like, that's a milestone that when you cross that, you're in new territory. Right. I think 55 miles an hour is the next one, and then I think 75 miles an hour is the next where it feels totally different than slower than that. I would agree. Yeah. Your mile per hour and mine are to vary, um, but no, absolutely. The thresholds are, for me, when you get to 30 miles an hour, you can kind of know you're going faster than you should Oh, be. it's definite that you can't run it off. You're yeah. definite can't run it off. And, you know, at that speed, you, you know, back in the day, skateboard trucks, you'd start wobbling. Victor Earnhardt, Victor told me that that's just nervous ankles. Oh. Had nothing to do with jet. I'm like, oh, come on, dude. So, you know, give me six beers, put me on a board, solid as a rock. Because I'm not nervous, my nervous ankles, ankles aren't nervous. <laughs> and that, that stuck with me all these years is the nervous ankles. Um, then the next threshold for me was probably around 55, yeah. And then after that, it would have to be about 73, 74. Yeah. Because it's a whole nother level of feeling under your feet. Yeah. 
No, it's almost like changes. you're oscillating a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you get in the mid 50s, the air changes around you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that once you hit that mid 50 mark, at that point, an aerodynamic definitely starts to be a factor. Oh, yeah. Anything below that, eh, that's all. You can wear any helmet you want, it doesn't matter. But when you hit 60 plus, everything's a factor. And, you know, I, I got up to 80. We did, right after Gary Hardwick broke that record that he broke for speed, him, myself, and um, uh, Mark Golter, I took him to one of my hills, going out to Barrett, Blossom Valley. Okay. No, not Blossom. Deerhorn Valley Road. That's a 70-mile-an-hour hill huh. on a good day. And we had a tailwind, and the guy driving said that when, we, when I passed Mark at the very bottom, that we were doing 73 miles an hour. That yeah, was that's fast as hell. That was 15, 15 years ago, maybe? Yeah. So, you know, we, that's what we did. We loved that speed. And the board is a weird feeling because after about 60, it starts to oscillate. You can feel it just, it, it feels almost like the wheels aren't on the ground so much anymore because the, the lift and the air and just all that feeling you get, you can definitely feel a difference. But I went to wrist. Yeah. I couldn't believe that was the fastest I've ever been. And I drafted a Mustang because it pulled out in front of me. I guarantee you I was real close to 80 because that board stabilized and it felt like I was on a magic carpet. That's what I mean. You, so like in wrist, between those. You get through the chicane and you get to that last straight part and it's like the, like it all like blurs out like a movie and you like see the bottom of the hill. And, yeah, you, you never feel out of shape at all. You're just locked in at that point, and you're just going to connect the dots. Completely locked in. I think at 50, you're not locked in at all. No, you got all a lot of mobility All kinds of stuff happens. I mean, you can, like, swerve a little bit, and you're, you're, like, all over the place. But when you get to that threshold, you're not swerving anymore. Right. I mean, if you tried it, I don't think it'd work other than fall off the board. No, you just get lined the, out. And... It would just take you off the board, I think. I don't think at that point you're going to be doing this. No. And um, I've been raced since obviously 41 years. Okay, so you got actual so, competition. So you're at Clay Wheels, and then Urethane Wheels came around, and you were obviously riding them because if you were, you know, skateboard competition 1979. So at what point, and this, this was for downhill? Yeah, it's, it's senior downhill champion. Okay, on here it just says overall senior champion. Yeah, because there was three competitions. Okay, so. When so you were riding clay wheels down the hill, did you do skate park stuff? I mean, were you doing other skateboard disciplines? Yeah, uh, my my favorite thing. I I, I did parks, but uh, back then no one was getting air. Right, you were right. getting three really wheels out yet. was all you're doing. Yeah, I mean anybody to get air. I had sky hooks where I could get air. Right, so I'd launch. Um, there was a skate park in Newburn, North Carolina. It wasn't a park at all. This guy decided he was going to open up a skateboard shop right beside the high school. Okay. He built a half pipe, a true half pipe. So no flat bottom. That was, um, I think it was 15 feet by 20 feet. And the top three feet were vert. So 15 feet tall, 20 feet wide? No, 15 feet tall on one side, oh, 20, 20 feet, feet on, the on the other side. So kind of useless. And the, the you width kind of, of like skate the 15 foot side. Well, you dropped in on that. Okay. And then you launched up, 
and got as far as you could, and then you come back right. down, and then we you scrub the speed. Okay. Um, I skipped school so many times. I actually dropped out of school. Um, it just became my life, man. I loved hanging out with the guy. Um, that's where I first saw Tony Alva. He would show skate and surf films at his house, and he had this little skate team going on. So, and I was one of the skate team guys. Right. I was 15, maybe. And um, that's when I first saw California skating. Right, because at that point, it's not like you wouldn't have had access to, like, video much or even, like, you would have had magazines, maybe. Yeah, that's all we had. And there was no skate magazines, only surf magazines. There and, was nothing skate-related. surf magazines had, had any skateboard coverage? Nothing. So you didn't know about, like, tricks or style or whatever. You in North make, Carolina and the up. Deep South, dude, we thought the world was flat. Huh. I had no idea California existed. Wow. I didn't even know the town next to us actually existed. Wow. You're locked into a bubble. Just like the only news you and... get is ABC, CBS, and NBC. And that's it. And that's all programming stuff. Right. The news that they gave back then wasn't about your local town and city. It was about right. what they decided the world you needed to hear. There was no talk about no, overseas stuff. You know, <laughs> there was no social media whatsoever. Right. So you know, what we did there... They had no idea we were doing that. So, so Same with us, them. So did you get to see Tony Alva skate the ramp? He, Tony Alva's on this side of the world. I was on that side. Oh, so you, of, but you saw a video. I, well, yeah, it was a video, uh, uh, okay. eight-track um, VCR yep. that he showed us. But actually, no, it was a real. It was like an eight That he meter. had a screen at his house. God, I can't believe I remember that just then. So he's got so it's like a projector. It's a projector that he would get stuff from the West Coast. He got film reels because he was in a skate shop. Right. So I they'd, they'd that, send him promo or whatever. Well, they were sending him Dogtown boards. Okay, so then they the sent big him a fat film. pigs. Right. Favorite board. Oh my God, I loved them. And then Caster came in and some other manufacturers. So he had access because there was no skateboards in North Carolina. Right. They all came from California. Yeah. But I didn't know that either. But they would send him different reels, and he'd put them on. A lot of surfing, you know, because we, Cause we back lived then it on was the all coast. the same. Like yeah, every skate company was a surf company. Yes, pretty much. So they, um, they there, all had both. He was the only skateboard shop I've ever seen in my whole life. That's why okay. I hung out there. Right. I mean, he had skate clothes, and they had shorts that had pads in them. Right. It's so rad. What were those called? Mollies? I don't remember. Rectors. Oh, okay. Yeah, they had rector everything back then. Nice. Um, and you know, like I said, I just hung out there and hung out there and hung out there and, um, you know, and you know, I was surfing. So I've always been on a board since I could walk. I mean, it was just such an attraction to me. You don't need money, man. Right. You just need some balls. I mean, if you're brave enough to get on that board and point it straight and you got a hill, 15 mile an hour, scare the hell out of you if you've never done it. I mean, I, I've watched them a lot because they'd see me, oh, I'll try it. And then you see all of a sudden the fear in their eyes. Right, you get to that. And then they start thinking. the speed you faster than you can run. I better start running. And they try. And they get like six, seven steps in their face planning. It's like, I told you not to do that. You know? well, why did um, you let them try? It's so, it's so much fun on different levels. Yeah, man. I, know? I know why you let them try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so that's, get, that's late 70s. You saw Tony Alva on the on the video. So 
And at that point, you were skating, skating the half pipe and skating down hills. Mm-hmm. And from there, you know, did you know about, when did you find out about downhill racing? Because 79, like, you know, John Hudson was happening. 1997. So you didn't know anything about downhill racing until the 90s. 1997. And some dates I kind of can't, hard not to remember. But, like, you had to be, somewhere you know that downhill racing existed. Like, did you skate the whole time from 79 to the 90s? Yeah, every day. But you didn't have, like, you never saw a mag with a John Hudson photo in it or anything oh, like that. Oh, God, no. I'm, I didn't even know who any of them guys wow. were. None of them. So you, like, the whole time I raced, I didn't even know who Roger Hickey, what his story was. Wow. Only thing I knew about Roger Hickey was he was an arrogant bastard. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, yeah. honestly, I'm, I, don't ask me questions if you don't want an honest answer. Oh, no, no. I, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm going to say as I feel and like it really, truly is. So yeah. That's how I roll. Well, it's just like when, when I was talking to Roger and like Biker kind of kept coming up because he's a big part of this story. And, and that what, what I said about him is that we don't have to f- mince words about Biker just because he's not with us. You he's know, a huge part of this story. So this is what I'm, where I'm at, that it, just because he's gone and he can't defend himself doesn't mean that we can't call him out for being who he was. And we can appreciate him for who he was at the same time. I and don't think same, either one of you would be racing today if it wasn't for right. Biker Sherlock. So, and the same thing applies to Roger, where, like, Roger can defend himself, and, and if he wants to, he will. I, it doesn't matter to me. Your opinion about Roger's contribution is exactly the same as his opinion about anybody else's. Hey, I give the I, guy I, props. The, the only thing that, I would, that would upset me is if you were to hold your tongue or be dishonest about how you felt about it. Right. So, so That's I, not how I roll. Right. I get in trouble over my honesty. <laughs> but, it, you know, it is. So, okay, so... So we can kind of jump to that point. So, you, so what was your? You found out about downhill racing in the nineties. How? Did you, where did you see it? Actually, it. I personally, because it's me, it's kind of a cool story from where I, my roots of you know a trailer trash basically. Um, no pun intended. Oh, I, I understand. I grew from a very impoverished uh, lifestyle. Yeah, deep south. Very yeah, impoverished. Um, my wife, uh, I had four kids. I think two were in diapers. And we all watched you know, television in the evenings together. And a program came on that it was, what was it? It was, I forget what channel it was, but it was one of the main stations because yeah. that's all we got. And um, it was the X Games at Volcom Stadium, which is a football stadium here in San Diego. Okay. At this point, you're living here. Yeah, I was in Lemon Grove, which is seventeen minute town away from here. Okay. Close by. Yeah. To give you a little bit of the backdrop. And we were watching TV and I saw Street Luge on um, ABC Sports or something years ago. It was almost like black and white. Right. Looks sick it's sick, dude. Biker Sherlock just was laying on his back dominating, dude. It was so much fun. I like that, but I don't like laying down because it's too dangerous can't see what you oh you yeah mean. man I've, just I've done a little bit of street luge i like i could never ride a street luge on an open road i i got it up oh. to about 60 70 scared you, me to death see, never got on you one can't again see shit you and hit you something you're dead and you can't bail like you're going off the road at speed no matter what because you can't get off the thing you're never going to put it on your suit that's you're right you're going to almost make the turn and then you're going to go in the woods scariest or the guardrail or, ever mm. and everybody says because i'm older i should do a street luge fuck that shit man <laughs> i'm just telling you that's wrong um then we saw on television 
they were racing. It was actually a demo at the time. It was against BMX bikes to be in the X Games. Oh, okay. So, so it was a there race. was a duel. Uh, they they aired the downhill stand up, mm-hmm. and then they aired the BMX, and they had a boat. Okay. That's the only reason stand up never got into the X Games is because the bikes beat them. Because BMX was people like BMX. Man. Well, BMX, they have stadium venues where it's right. easier to. Uh, produce. No, you can put a half pipe in a stadium and you can sell a ticket. It's and that the whole was the reason point. why downhill has never played for mainstream. Because we have to have uh, big, big ass hills to make it fun. It's a pain in the ass to put on a downhill race compared to a skateboard or BMX competition, and, a, you, and yeah, you can't sell a ticket. No, you have to have stadium type venue. Yeah, uh, to create a downhill race in a stadium would never be conducive to no, anything. It's so gonna be, it's going to be powered. Yes. Yes. Electric skateboard and velodrome, baby. That's another subject, I suppose. we'll get there. Um, Well, we saw the guys coming down the hill. Okay. And Do you happen to remember any of the riders? uh, Yeah, the guys that I met right after that. Because there was Biker, Todd Lair, Darren Kessing, Gary Hardwick, Eric Lee... Um, Bo Brown may have been in the mix, I'm not sure, but, um, there was like 13, 14 of them, I suppose. Okay. Um, Pretty those are the names that kind of stick out for me. Uh, Lee Dancy, right. can't hold him out of that chip, mm-hmm. man. Um, all the guys who did stand-up were street losers. Right. And the only reason they did stand-up is because they offered another venue for them. Yeah. Or another discipline. So they did it. Um, I saw that. And, you know, my wife, uh, she said, Rick, you could do that. And I go, I know I could do that. She goes, you should do it. You know, I have kids running around in diapers. and I'm a roofer. I'm, you know, hard-ass trade. And the summer's here, you know, 110, right. 130 on the roof. I'm busting Cooked. my ass to feed my family. The thought of me not being able to do it or not to do it wasn't even in the picture. All that, it's like, uh, well, I could try to find out who does it. She goes, Rick, this stuck with me. I think it's why my passion became so strong for, I mean, 41 years, really, um, with my professional racing career, 22, 23 years. Um, She said, Rick, if you don't do it, one day you're going to be sitting in a rocking chair and you're going to see it somewhere. And you're going to tell yourself, I could have done that. Damn. Like, I just got huge goosebumps. Yeah, man. I mean, huge. Or you can sit back in that rocking chair and see you do it. Say, yeah, I did that. Oh, I'm getting them all over my face now. Because now I'm sitting here with you guys all these years later, and she passed. Because you did it. Yep. Sandy passed away um, 13 years ago. I did it. And now I'm sitting here with you two, and her premonition is coming true right now, right here, this spot today. Yeah. I'm telling you guys, I did it. And I did it at a, I was okay. I mean, I did it at a pretty high level. Yeah. They were afraid I'd beat them. So, okay, so 90, you said 97 is when you saw that? I believe it. About, thereabouts? Yeah, within a year or two, I'm sure. So how'd you find out who was doing it? Oh, my gosh. That was, okay, I have another buddy that lived here at the beach. I was living inland because of my kids. Yeah. Um, He had a computer. Right here, this is that time, like, not everybody Nobody did. had a computer. I mean, we had pagers, for God's sake. Right. 
There was if no you had cell that. phone. No, you had. No, well, I, I'd get paged and find a, a pay phone and put 20 cent in and call who paged me, get back in my truck, I'd get paged again. That was the reality of it. So we went to his house and like, okay, Art, look up. Um, we didn't even know what to look up. Like downhill skateboarding, nothing. Skateboarding, nothing. There was no, there was no one knew how to put social media or advertising no, like, on a computer. No one even made a website back then. It, it was, was like, raw data of whatever you know, Microsoft or whatever was doing at the time, and it right. was very grunt. Well, come to find out, he found an association in Germany. I called Germany. The guy goes at great personal expense because this was the nineties. You know, I think the bill was seventy-eight dollars. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I talked to Mike Ziesman. He calls me from friggin' South Africa. He was like a kid, 15 right. years. Called my home number, because we were on NCDSA at the time. Right. So I gave it to him. He calls my house, wanting to know all about the Americans coming. And I could never travel. Okay, so hold on. Go so go back. So you found, you, you talked to this German organization. Okay. And nice they must have told you about Hot Heels. No. No. He told me I turned it back. I turned it over to a guy named Biker Sherlock. Okay. And I'm thinking, okay, you're in friggin' Germany. This guy's got to be like somewhere like. Okay, can I get his number? He gave me his phone number. And it's local. Oh my gosh, it's 15 minutes from my house. Right. I call him up. He said, "Yeah, dude, come on over. We'll show you what's going on." I go, deep sigh. What part of the country do you live in, man? Uh, I live in San Diego. I'm like. You do, me too. Well, where do you live? Uh, I'm in Lemon Grove. Oh, I'm Marino Valley. Come on over. Just come see my shop. Amazing. Him and Amy interviewed me when I got there to see if I had what it took to race wow. before they showed me anything. Because that's the kind of thing where at this point in time, there were like less than, I don't know, 50 downhill racers worldwide. Uh, there was Serious ones? 30. Okay, so so for like, they took you seriously as an applicant because anybody who was like had been skating and wanted to race was like maybe really going to be one of the tribe. The, he didn't want anybody coming in that could beat him. Oh, so he wanted to make sure he, that, he ran it with an iron fist. That you, you weren't too good before they showed you any of the gear. And they wanted to know my history, and I told him I'm a surfer. I've been skateboarding my whole life. And he goes, dude, and I told him about my family, and I'm a roofer. Yeah. He goes. I'll tell you right now, you're not going to be able to do this. You don't have the money, and you got kids, and you have to travel, man. You're never going to do this. And if you did get to do this, don't even think for one second you're ever going to beat me. And I'll tell you that right now. Wow. So if you think you're going to come in here and, and win a race, you're wrong. And if you think you can get to races, you're wrong. You don't have the money to do it. I go, well, I sure would like to try. He goes, all right, dude, come back here. And he walked back to his shop. He had a stack of boards about that high. Which one do you want? He picked one up. I said, that one, which is that board right there. Wow. And I grabbed it. He hooked me up with some Randall trucks, just the whatever they're called, the standard. So at that time, were they been R2s or Randall downhills? Do you know they're 50-degree base plates or 35-degree base plates? 35-degree so base. So Randall downhills. Yeah, 35. Okay. I stuck with so 30, same, 35 same my whole career. Right. I never went past 35 ever. Right. Too wobbly. My <laughs> trucks are so tight, I needed extra threads. I, I, Dave Rogers <laughs> used to laugh at me. He's like, dude, you don't even have threads anymore. I'm like, it's all Holy good. Shit. 
Okay, so he gave you a deck and some trucks. Yep. Did he give you wheels? He gave me the first set of wheels he gave me was um, live wires. I've never heard of that. Shittiest Who little slowest wheel there was. Okay, so he, was, even he wasn't going to give me anything good. But, no way. But maybe he was looking out for you. He's like, I'm going to give you these really no, slow wheels. No, he don't look out for people. Yourself. No, he no. He don't right. look out for people. That's not how he rolls. <laughs> okay, so he gave maybe you, he was. So he I gave you a know. setup. Do you like help you put it together, or was he no. like, here you go, you figure it out? He said, here you go, and says, if you really want to race, you got to buy leathers. You can't race without leathers. He gave me okay. a chaparral book to order leathers. He goes, okay, man, next race is in October. I'll send you an invitation. Because back then, you didn't know about shit unless you got a letter in the mail. Right, because how else you couldn't find it on the internet? There is no internet. You, you have to call him because he's the only one who would know. He won't answer it. He won't talk to you. So, wow. So you like got on the mailing list. I got on the mailing list. So that this was is just huge. like, it's that was so huge. lucky that all of these things <laughs> had to line up. And amazing that you were in this area. You could have been anywhere else in the country and no I believe strong in uh, karma, fate. Yeah. Destiny. Um, right place, right time. Everything was right for you to find. My this. whole life, it's just been like chaotic hardships and trials and trivias and trying to work all day roofing, you know, put food on the table and get diapers. Diapers are expensive for the kids. And, you know, we had dogs and cats and the whole nine yards. That I had to do. Right. That's one hat. And, you know, uh, the other hat is I was committed to go. Right. So... I just um, worked all week hard and got that letter in the mail. Mammoth Mountain Scenic Loop. Had no idea where Mammoth Mountain was. Wow. I looked it up on the map. Paper maps, by the way. Good thing it was pretty close back then. You could drive there. Eight-hour drive. Yeah. I took the Weiss minivan. Perfect. Went up there. Gave it a go. So, so how much did you ride before you went to that race? So you said the race was in October. When did you get your setup? I uh, got the leathers in the mail about a month later. Okay. And this is where my timing and everything. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, um, give so me I went idea. to a motorcycle shop and bought a motorcycle helmet. Okay. Heavy ass sucker too, man. Oh yeah, man. those things are the worst. It was a bell helmet. Your head's full like a board. magnet to the ground. That's so probably heavy. why my neck's eject. Yeah, well, definitely it's probably down. a contributing factor. I got all my stuff. Um, I went to my buddy's house to try it on for the first time, which um, is Doug Moise. It's the house that I showed you right. at Hill. And I suited up. We played around with the helmet for a little while. I walked to the top of the hill, went into a tuck, which for me, the tuck was hands first. Okay, yeah. Because I don't know, shit, man. I mean, I was just going for it. And so I trained on that hill for a couple months, I'd say. It's the only hill I knew. Okay, so, so you rode for a couple months before, before race, Mammoth. At least. Like you, you kind of got to ride your board a little bit and get a little yeah, bit used but, to going fast. We were never told what the hill looked like. Right. We were never, we weren't allowed to even go to the hill. If you were caught anywhere around the hill before an event, you were kicked out straight up. So when you got there, everything was a surprise. Goddamn Max Caps and Daniel Engel have been at Barrett for like two days right now. I know, he called me. <laughs> he's, he's, he's patching the road, bro. I'm sure he is. He's making it plenty safe for of you guys to have fun. Plenty of, plenty of practice laps. You know? Well, you need them there. Well, what are we doing here? That's, oh, what, I was, that's what I was thinking. That's right, it's wet. There he didn't you want to ride it today. He's patching the road for you. He's, been, oh, okay, he's making his preferred line. Perfect. It's like Clutie's patch. Right. I made that because I knew where I wanted to go. I didn't know everybody would follow me through it. Now they all know the line. But, um, so you went to Mammoth. Went to Mammoth. Uh, I got there, and we, it was during Oktoberfest. So, you know, we were staying, I was staying the night, mm -hmm. and the hotel I was in, 
um, I met Reed Lowry. Okay. And who is, Reed, who is Reed Lowry? He was a local uh, mammoth uh, uh, um, snow groomer. Okay. He, he lived and worked on the mountain. Well, NJK made him a set of leathers for skateboarding. Right, because Kelsey has like been a mammoth guy forever. Well, his shop was in Mammoth. They knew each other, and he asked him if he'd make him some leathers. Okay. And uh, Reed's kind of a rough dude, you know? I mean, he's just, he was a rough dude, I should say. Um, Kelsey agreed and made him his first set of leathers. That was the very first set of downhill leathers ever made. It all started with my buddy Reed. Cool. And um, I met him. We really got along famously. We did, and we've been best buddies for all these years. And um, him and I connected, and we got to the hill, and one of the guys that was in the hotel room as well, um, him and his girlfriend, he was selling decks, just selling a bunch of stuff. Well, he wanted to compete as well. We got to the hill, and during practice, Biker was eliminating guys from riding. Just like looking you up and down and being like, you're out. If, you, if he didn't think you could ride down that hill, you're gone. Ugh. Because that hill was scary, man. Because, I mean, it's the fastest I've ever been. Right. It was a 50-mile-an-hour hill and crappy wheels. I mean, it was butter smooth, and it was a mountain terrain run, and Biker shut the road off, one end to the other. We had the whole forest to ourselves. Wow. And that was my first introduction to gravity because they were all street losers. There's like 110 street losers. Whoa. There were only like 16 of us, maybe 17, that first race. Yeah. Maybe more, I don't remember. But um, a lot of us were new. And he couldn't hold the amateur division because he had already kicked out the guys who he thought couldn't run the hill. So he walked over to me and says, hey, Clutie, man, Sorry, dude, we don't have an amateur division uh, at this race. I'm like, what? You just, I bought all this shit? And came all the way out of here You joking me? He's like, well, we're going to have to grandfather you into the pros. I'm like, pros? Oh, so you just like made your debut at pro. I'm a pro. Been a pro for 23 years. <laughs> it's kind of a cool story, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I made, you must have looked okay. Your gear must have been good looking or something. Brand for him, new. For him to be like, ah, he looks like he belongs. Yeah, it was brand <laughs> new. Those leathers lasted me six months, I think. Ripped them to shreds. I, well, the thing is, is that we went down the hill, and at Mammoth Zenith Loop, the whole race really starts at the top where it's got this sweeping off camber right, and it goes on forever. It just keeps going around and around. Right when you think you've cleared it, you didn't. So you got to keep your shit tight, man. And then you hit that straight away. It's nothing but drafting. Well, I made my first run on them slow wheels, and guys were kind of being mean to me. They were blowing by me and smacking me and beating me and pushing on me. And, you know, they were working me hard, and I was really getting upset. When I got to the bottom, it occurred to me all of a sudden in a blur, I have no idea how to stop this thing. Oh, because so you've just been riding your local hill only. Yeah, <laughs> 30 mile an hour. Yeah. You know, I had no idea what to do at 50. So I got down to the bottom, and Biker had some hay uh, stacked on the corner that was left over and kind of almost to the woods and shoulder. And I had to make a quick decision. I'm not taking my foot off that board, and I had no idea how to get off this thing. I just, right before the hay, I launched and got off the board and did one of them tucks and smashed into the hay. 
it buried me underneath the hay. Biker comes running over to me. He helps me up out of the hay. Dude, you okay? Yeah, I was kind of shaken. I mean, it was yeah. scary. I didn't realize you had to fucking stop. Don't do that again. Uh-oh. I'm like, what? I didn't put those hay for you to crash in. No more. If you can't stop, you don't race. So I'm like, all right, all right. My next run, I'm getting, like, not any more confident. And they're still beating me all over the place and kind of getting pissed. Um, I get down to the bottom, and the biker's standing there like this. Because he, he knew I couldn't stop. Right. I said, fuck it. Jumped off my board, slid to a stop on my leathers, got up, looked at him. He went, fair enough. <laughs> and that was my first day, wow. of my first race. And so that night, you know, Reed and I really got kind of close. And um, the guy that took me there is my, my, my wife's best friend on the tree service. He hired one of his employees. He had a camper on his tree truck, mm -hmm. and he hired him to drive me to Mammoth because he was going to sponsor me. He wanted me to live a dream. Yeah. And we were really close family-wise. Um, and we got to the liquor store, and he was all like, dude, you suck at this. We should just go. I mean, you're obviously not any good at this, and you don't belong here. We should go. And I'm like, well, you're driving, and I don't really have a say in this, I guess. He goes, okay, let's pack it up. Reed came over. We're sitting out in front of the liquor store. And he goes, hey, buddy, um, don't leave so soon. Why don't we get some beers? Let's sit on the back and just have some beers. So while we're having the beers, he's saying, dude, we're, we're okay. We're doing this. It's fine. Some of the locals are coming over. I mean, congratulating Reed for being the local at this race and really pumped us up. And he looked at me, and we had a couple beers. I got a little buzz, and he's like, you have to stay, man. I looked at him and says, I'm staying. He says, all right. The next morning, I got up really early, went to Biker's trailer at the top of the hill. I said, dude, I need faster wheels. He goes, all right. They're 80 bucks. Woof. Okay, I don't care. What wheels were they? Cherry bombs. Okay. And I'm like, okay, I don't care. And he's like, you got the cash? No, man, but I swear I'll give it to you when we get home. I, I will. I'm good for it. All right. Here you go. Fat, brand-new cherry bombs. Yeah. As I walk out. Rat salt comes over. Hey, dude, where are my wheels? Um, I don't have any wheels for you. What are you talking about? You showed them to me. They were for the team. Where are my wheels? I'm like, oh, shit. He, he sold me a free set of wheels given to him for rat. Oh, my God. <laughs> but also, I love the fact that the previous day, he, like, watched you visibly not know how to stop. But yeah, I you, could ride. And then when you came and hit him up for faster wheels, he was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I think it turned him on. You yeah. know, he's a, he's a like, big adrenaline you, junkie. You wanted to go faster. Like, that's fine. And I think he chuckled in that whole, is why he did that. Yeah. He's like, damn, I'd love to see you stop going faster than you're going now. Sweet. So um, he did. I put him on. Uh, Sunday when we raced, my first heat, I passed a guy. And when I passed that one guy, that was the beginning of my career. Just the one guy. Because then I knew I wasn't slow and I was Right, you okay. weren't the worst. I wasn't the worst. I didn't get last. Right. So I did pretty good. 
I mean, I think I got like 17th out of 20 something riders. So, I mean, I did yeah, all right. Fine for your first race. Totally. So, the next time down the hill, I go, okay, I got to do this. I got to put my foot down. I have to put my foot down. So, for about a half a mile, I'm adjusting my feet, like taking it off a little bit, putting it back on. Dude, you got to do this. Everybody's out of sight. You just right. got to do this. Took my foot off, put my foot down, and my friggin' treads gripped. And instead of like sliding to a stop, because I've never slid before, once you wear them down, it's easier. Yeah, yeah. Slam! Oh. I mean, hard. You just put your braking foot down too hard. By the end of the weekend, it looked like I had been racing five years. Nice. Them leathers were worked. <laughs> the next race, Dane Bambamo. Again, we did Mammoth a couple times. Yeah. Dane Bambamo gets on the back of the U-Haul with me. And uh, it was funnier than shit, man, because his leathers were the same as mine. Identical. Oh, okay. Chaparral, mm -hmm. white and blue leathers. And he sits down beside me, and his were pristinely white. Mine weren't even white anymore. And he looks at me and goes, hey, bro, how long have you been racing? I go, second race. He's like, how long have you had them leathers? Oh, a couple year, a couple months, six months? He's kind of staying away from me the whole time. He didn't want nothing <laughs> to do with me. Obviously, I didn't know how to ride that board, but I burned up a lot of leathers just trying to figure out how to stop. Right. So um, after a while, I got the hang of it, you know, worked out. So, not, so that's... That was kind of your first season, and then it kind of took off, right? So the next year comes around. You know how to stop. You know about good wheels. Yep, and um, again, timing is I'll just go through what yeah. I can you know, grasp. Is that we were in the jacuzzi of this friend, One Trip Tree Service, Steve. Uh, his wife and my wife we were all in the jacuzzi having some wine. And I told him about, you know, because he sent me there, how, what had happened. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty good at it. And I went to a few more races, and I, I did okay. And I told him what my plans were. And he goes, Rick, I'll pay for half your leathers. Because I'd already pretty much in the first season burnt that leather up. Yeah. Um, I, as a kid, all we had were comic books. And as a kid, the mainstream comic book was Captain America. Green Lantern, yeah, shit like that, and I right, thought there were like eight comic books at that point. Exactly, <laughs> and you know, I knew when I first put the leathers on the very first one, it was kind of a superhero thing. Yeah, absolutely, and I was older. I was the oldest competitor, even starting, because I think I was thirty three, thirty five years old or something. And I went, you know what? If I'm going to risk my life and do this, by God, I'm going to be a superhero. And I told him I want to be Captain America. He says, go for it, man. So um, I sent NJK a sketch. He sent back a sketch. We did this a few times, so I got the suit right. I called DC Comics, asked him if it would be okay if I was Captain America. He goes, yeah, absolutely. There's no problem with you being Captain America. And then I'm like, so the copyrights and all that, I'm okay and all that? Because I literally was going to be Captain right, America. Right, The personality thing. Um, he agreed. The guy started making my leathers. And it's interesting, all of our fittings, he was sky jumping. So I would drive to Lake Elsinore. It was about an hour drive from here. Yeah. And in the, um, on the tarmac, he would, we would do a fitting. 
And then after I did the fitting, I'd go home, he'd go back skydiving. We did this like two or three times until huh. he got it right. Hence, Captain America. Wow. So, and that's just, that's been your thing ever since. Yeah, it's just and my, it's, it? it's my stick. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's perfect. So that was, so you got the Captain America suit and you started going to more, more and more events. Did you start going a little bit further, like more events outside of California? Like, did you go to any of the EDI stuff, like in St. George or uh, Pikes Peak? There were two games in town back then, only two. There were no um, outlaw races, none of that. Okay. EDI and IGSA. Okay. They were the only two games anywhere, as far as I knew. Um. I started racing IGSA because they had races, and I think that my most races I did was 13 races in one season. That's pretty good. So I went from EDI to IGSA. Well, the traveling comes into play because the commitment that I made to the sport and my wife made to me to fully support me, part of that was one of the things in the back of my head, biker going, you can't do this. So every race, I hustled. I was on the computer trying to find sponsors an hour every day. Yeah. I would just, I typed in because I was trying to quit smoking nicotine. Nicotine Wills came up, was a great sponsor. They were huh. on the East Coast because I tested everything. Made, manufacturers would send me stuff, yeah. give them input. Um, so with that, I was able to go to Santa Rosa. So where, where were Nicotine Wheels made, do you know? Uh, on the East Coast, I believe it was somewhere around North Carolina. Okay, I have a set. Nicotine wheels? Yeah. Red, the orange ones? Yeah. Red, the red? Orange. Dark red? Uh, they're like an orange. They're, they're more orange. They have aluminum cores. Really? Yeah. How, how, how long ago did you get them? They went out of business. I got them probably 10 or 12 years ago. That's the thing that makes me sad is all the different wills and stuff that people gave me. I tested. Yeah. I burned them up or threw them away or, you know, whatever. Gave them away because I needed to race. I hustled everybody in town. Every roofing company, $100 here, $50 there. Right. And I got to travel. I've never been on a plane before in my life until I started racing. Wow. Flew to Santa Rosa. Did really good there. Nice. Um, Quebec. Never thought I'd go there. Oklahoma, Utah, St. George, twice, both sides of the hill. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forget, because they raced both sides of that, because I've skated down one of the old tracks there. Well, the first one had a left. Yeah. The second one had a right and then a quick left, because they made a left. And here's another little, because um, we're on Santa Rosa, um, Utah, Yeah. St. George. It was the first time I had met biker, or, um, Roger Hickey. Okay, so what year would this have been? I have no idea. Okay, probably no. like 99, 2000, 2001. Somewhere 99-ish. Yeah. Somewhere like that. So St. George. So so Roger wasn't at any of the other stuff. He wasn't at any of the Mammoth? He was at the Mammoth, and he was like at the bottom of the of the list of uh, what were you... Um, of qualifying. Where you raced your status. Okay. You know, what number you got of where you, how good you were. Right. Um, we were at the top on the first course, and he was at the top just before we all took off, and um, he was trying to psych people out. 
and there was a left that people were eating the hay quite a bit in. It was really kind of hard to make, and they made this chicane before it. So you did this chicane out of hay, and then you hooked this left into the finish line. Right. And he was telling everybody, don't look where you're don't look at where you're going, look where you want to go. And he was psyching everybody out on the hay bells. You know, don't look at the hay bell, don't look at it. And he was like almost preachy in right. a way. And everyone's like, who is this guy? You know, he had, you know, big guy, you know, looked like he was serious. He had a freaking fancy stuff. Oh, he's always had tight gear. You know, he's like always yeah, had, super he's always nice. crisp. Yes. So, you know, we're all doing our thing and we get back to the top. I'm like, well, where's that guy at? Oh, he broke his wrist in that turn. He hit the hay and broke his wrist. So he wasn't competing that day. I see. Um, so I got to travel because of the skateboard. And a lot of people know my passion and my desire and my strength to follow it through. Mm -hmm. I had many, many people give me money. A little here, a little there. I had clothing sponsors send me boxes of clothes. Um, it was starting to click for me because I knew I couldn't do it on my own, and I agreed with, um, with Sandy that I wouldn't spend family money to go live my dream. Yeah. And I would only do it on the weekends. So, and that was a huge uh, part of it, like Providence, Rhode Island. My church, sweet old ladies at the church, all were given five, $10. Wow. The church gave me enough money to fly to Providence to race in the gravity games. Wow. The church. So back then, so what did it take? This is something I, I haven't been able to get good information on. What did it take to get into the Gravity Games? Rankings. Okay, and you got the rankings by going to enough IGSA or EDI races? This is strictly EDI. Right, because Biker, because of his dad, and Gravity Games is on NBC. Correct. So he kind of owned the entrance to that. He could control it, pretty much. Correct. So, so when you qualified for the Gravity Games in Rhode Island... What, so what kind of finishes were you having to get in EDI races to have a good enough ranking? You had to get that? a top 16 because there were 16 riders. Okay. From my so you had to have a top 16 my... ranking. Right. So you had to be doing well enough in enough races to get that ranking. That's right. And then once you were qualified, you just could, you got to go. That's right. Okay. You, 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 you got points that he had. So when I was in uh, Providence, oh, maybe five years ago, four years ago, when I was over there for the Killington World Cup, um, Max Dubler's parents live in Providence, and the uh, the start lines are still painted on the road. You're joking. Yeah. After all these years? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's cool. And he was there, so Max Dubler was at that race as a teenager and bought his first longboard at the Dregs booth at that race. Wow. Yeah. See, there's a lot of history in, oh, in the stuff that I've done that today there's players in that factor now. Right. Though you were on the other side. You, like, you were like on the other side of the glass. Like you were in the big show. Right. And he was like a skateboard kid who was like, wow, this is cool and had to be a part of it and bought a longboard. Yep. So. And Providence was, again, biker in Providence, I think, with the Gravity Games, is what sparked the overwhelming. Uh, influx of downhilling in general. So what? So how did you think that happened, and what changed after that? National television, man. Oh, so that was the first time it was on national television ever, like that. ABC had one back in the seventies okay. where they were doing slalom with these big ass car cones. Right, you know? I've seen that footage. That yeah. NBA, ABC Sports. Right. You know that was hokey to what we were doing. Right. I mean, we were treated like royalty. Well, it was filmed really well. They had like they had the NFL, the they had the NFL crews like, there. They made it look fast, even though it was like thirty-seven miles an hour. Like the way they shot it, made it look 
cool and extreme. Like they and had the line the line road with hay bales, like it looked really good. Well, it was professionally done, and the mm -hmm. NFL crews, camera crews, were the ones actually filming that. Right. The NFL doctors and paramedics had this big four tent, like, what do you call it when people get shot up in war and they take them to oh, this? Oh yeah, like a triage. It center. was a triage center, and it was they had tables everywhere. Whoa. I thought when we showed up, it was for massages. <laughs> no, really. At one point, every table was full. Oh, no. Everyone was that crashing. That track was actually kind of gnarly for the day. Oh, my God. George Jordan crashed so many times that he was bleeding so hard in his head, they had to make him stop. Wow. It's cool to me that at that time that there were some, like, some 70s-era pros who were into it. That George Jordan and Bo Brown were like downhill racers. Definitely. After their major bowl skating pro careers. Definitely. That's cool if that worked out. Daryl Freeman hit the hay so hard, his shoe flew off and went in the air, and they filmed it. <laughs> so, so who all was at that race? So you got uh, well, George Orton, Daryl Freeman. I will show you right now. Oh, man, we got pictures. Um, this is the uh, Providence Rhode Island list of riders. Obviously, I'm going to take pictures of this. You might have a so actually, I'll take a picture of every photo when we're done. But so 1999. Okay, so we got a date here. This is good. Helps us with our dates and oh, you're gonna get you're gonna get a lot of that there. So 1999, uh, David Bryant, who I've never heard of, Caveman. Oh, okay, I've definitely heard of him. Caveman. That's awesome. There's a reason he was called Caveman. Dude, I love. So the first <laughs> time I went to Canada in 2008, um, we stayed at Kevin Reimer's parents' house because he lived with his parents at the time, and he had like a cardboard box that I think he got from Daryl Freeman that had like all of these broadcasts on VHS recorded and it was raining a couple days and we like sat in the basement and watched all of them and I remember seeing these guys especially and remembering Caveman. NBC he was in, Sports he was sent like me the, a VHS of the raw footage. He was enormous. He was like this gigantic guy and he tucked he, he couldn't hands, make a turn for shit. Right, he tucked hands forward, yep. too, so it always looked like he was like chasing somebody, like he was going to get them. But he was the most gentle person. He'd right. never crash you out. Me, I get mad, and you really upset me. I'm going to wrap my arms around you, dude. So, Lee Danzi. Not that I crashed him. I just kind of gently put him to the ground. Daryl Freeman, John. Well, I can't get that Woskowski. last name. Okay. John Dredd. Oh, that explains why they call him John Dredd, because his last name is spelled no, he, he wore, he, no, he wore dreadlocks. Right, but also because his last name is G-W-I-A-Z-D-O-W-S-K-I. It was simpler, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, Gary Hardwick, Roger Hickey, so he qualified for that. He did qualify, remember, Mammoth, yes. I told you? Yeah. Rick Clutie, Todd Lair, Sean Mallard, Julian Mertuck. I've never heard of him. Frenchie. Okay, because all these other guys, this is like a who's who of... Downhill guys from the time. We as were it should be. We were a crew. Remy Nguyen Cow. Who? Remy. Remy, another Frenchie. Okay, never heard of him. Couple. George Orton. Yeah. Biker Sherlock Ratzolt and John Warburton. So he was in the Pete Connolly episode. He was like one of Pete Connolly's guys who got him into it. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I'm gonna have to talk to him too. Cause look who the alternate. Look at the alternate there. Okay, alternates were Dane Van Bommel and and Reed Lowry. So that's like... They Which were, is ironic that Dane actually ended up podium, and then after that, he was under... Un, no so one who, could beat so, him. So at that race, who, got, who was out that Dane got in? Roger Hickey. Okay, so what happened? He crashed and went to the hospital. Okay. If you leave the race course, you're not allowed to compete. Okay, see, I didn't know that. 
and he left the race course. So he was upset because he came back and nothing was wrong with him, and he's, they wouldn't let him race. I, see. I could be wrong on that particular race because we did. That's the only one I did. So, yes, that was what happened. Awesome. Biker wouldn't let me do it again because I kind of stole his show a bit. NBC loved me, dude. Well, yeah, because you're a personality me. and you're Captain America. I, de- I wasn't you at the time. You played on TV. Okay. At the time, I had the white leathers. Okay. That was my first year, I think. So I was just figuring stuff out. I almost beat him because he got cocky and started waving at the camera, thought I'd crashed. And in the background, you can see me in full tuck boogie coming on him. We had another 50 feet. I would have beat him. And we come through the last turn, he looks back like, oh, shit. Got all tight in his tuck, and he beat me. And I'm like, okay, I think I can do this. So at this time, 1999, what helmet were you wearing? I've always worn, I've only wore the uh, red helmet for a couple of races. And so that's what you were wearing. I've wore that dock for my entire career. So, but did you have it in '99? Yes. Okay. So, and that's when you got it. When did you get it? It was. Um, I don't remember. It was. But but, but how long before this? Uh, maybe a race. Okay, so close. Because I think a couple they, of races. He made. Them I think it like... was a couple of races. I only had the red helmet for like one or two races. Okay. I found out about the biker dregs helmet, mm-hmm. and uh, I went to L.A. and met with uh, Jarrett. Okay. I spent a half a day with the guy. Cool. Engineering mind all over the place. I'm so bummed that I never got to meet him. He was, uh, and I, my helmet was the very first one he ever did because it was all just a generic same size. Mm-hmm. Same size fits all. Yeah. Well, I was the first guy that he actually put my dimensions, measured my head exactly, everything, and put them on the computer because he wanted to start making sizes. Right. He had really, like, I was really early, like, uh, computer design, CAD drawings. Like, his website, which I, I wonder if it's still up, uh, had all these, like, had all these super early CAD drawings of, like, full suspension luge and, like, all these ideas that he had. Yeah, super smart stuff. So, well, the reason that that helmet is, there's only 17, 18, 18 of them ever made. Yeah. And he designed that from an engineering standpoint all the way through wind tunneling the whole nine yards. Right. That helmet was designed to break away on impact. It's a one-time-use helmet. How many times have you used yours? Uh, I should have thrown it away. Maybe like, more than one. <laughs> yeah, I should have thrown it away. And uh, I wouldn't let, like, I kept painting it. Yeah. If you look at my career in the book, every single year I had a different color. So, and I wonder about that. Because there's some that... soft spots on it, you know? <laughs> Calvin and I were <laughs> talking about that this morning that I could have sworn. That's why I'm all fucked up, man. Because I could have sworn when I met you it was carbon. It's, like, right, it's right there. It had it's carbon, carbon fiber showing. It, yeah. But then in this picture that we were looking at that I posted the other day, it was white. So I wondered if those were two different helmets, but it was the same one. Yeah, I always painted it. I'd sand it down and paint it. Okay. And Gary would get pissed at me. He actually took it from me once and sanded it down and said, don't ever do that again. He, like, sanded it back to carbon. Because I had so many layers of paint to hide some of my flaws. (laughs) More than scratches, bro. Uh No one should wear that helmet. Uh Um I had so much paint on it that the back fin, there wasn't hardly a fin there. In. He goes, dude, why even wear that? Holy like, Gary hell. was all in my shit all the time. We'd be training. He's like, you ever let me pass you like that again? I'll never ride with you. 
we're not here just to ride our skateboards. We're training by God, and you don't let me pass you. I'm like, all right. So from that point on, it was on. So it's cool to hear about him because he's a figure that I know almost nothing about. I know pictures, you know, I know he's gone. That's about all I know about him. And it's, it's cool to, to get a little picture of his personality a little bit. And so at this point, what board were you riding? That Gravity one. Games. So you're still on the, on the dregs board? Yes. Okay. I rode the dregs board until um, another kind of Cludyville type thing, how that name came about, really, is we were, at, again, Mammoth. Okay. Um, I was scared to death. I'd already got the hang of it. This is the second year. And I was actually competing. I mean, I was there with the guys. And um, Reed and I were always real close, no matter where we went. And there was this guy trying to talk to me. And when I get nervous, I pee a lot. And the street luge had just finished. So I'm starting to pee a lot. Yeah. Then, all of a sudden, the ambulance shows up. A bunch of people start showing up. And I'm like, what's going on? Stand up, get your suits on, it's on. All of a sudden, everything got real busy real quick. That scared me even more. So at that point, it's where you get into a mindset where nothing matters. Nothing's around. There's, it's, it's just a constant nothing. There's not a thought going on in my head. Um, I'm focused at going down that hill, and the guy's trying to talk to me. I completely blew him off. Never saw him. Huh. A couple of guys like tried to talk to Cludie, but he's out right now. He won't talk. Reed comes over and he shakes me, and I kind of like, "What?" He's like, "Dude, that guy wanted to sponsor you." What guy? He's been trying to talk to you for a while, Cludie. Why don't you go talk to him? I said, "No way, man. I'm doing this right now." Not till the race is over. Well, that guy happened to be um, the guy who made my race board that I raced today. That board is. 18 years old, easy. Wow. That's the second one. That's the shorter version. Right. It's um, an aircraft foam laced with carbon fiber and wood. Super light. He started making me boards. He'd send them. He was in Modesto, California. He'd send them down to me. I would draw all over the skateboard and put holes, send it back. We did this three or four times before he got it right. And then he made me that one, which I never wrote. Oh, I lost my good board. It was a longer board. That thing was a rocket ship, man. I won a lot of races and podium a lot with the RK1. That's the RK2. The RKH3, Mark Golter took from me, right in front of me at an event. The guy come over because we were designing a drop-through. Mm -hmm. And we did. And I designed it. He made it. Sick board. Super sick. He was reluctant to give it to me. He started wanting to sell it to me and stuff. So I'm like, no, nah, man, you're, you're going to give it to me this morning. Mark Golter bought it from him, and he handed it to him right in front of me. So that would have been the RK3, the first drop-through. Yeah. Which at that time, there was no such thing as a drop-through. TVS didn't have drop-through yet? No, Gary had a, a metal bar, and he had a kick tail and dropped it. Okay. So he didn't actually drop it, drop it. Mm -hmm. Oh, back to Gary. Oh, my God. He was my best friend. Um, we met at a bar in Providence. At the Gravity Games? At, that's the first time we met. Okay. It was me, him, and maybe George Orton in a bar drinking. And we started talking, and he wanted to know why I was in it. They all did. 
and we became kind of, we, we got along. And then when we went to Australia, him and I were competing back and forth. So The so entire what, event. So what event was in Australia? It well, was the 99 Australian X Games. Okay. Yes, I've never heard of this. Where was it? How had to be Sydney. Um, EDI, when we got there, they paid, uh, I had to get my airline ticket. Yeah. They gave us $200 American money, but the Australian was like 600 Right. So we had a pocket full of cash. They put all the athletes, this was a stand-up event and street luge event with EDI at the X Games. Wow. It was the Australian X Games. They put us in this humongous bus. Humongous. We go outside the city, and I forget if it was Brisbane or not, but we start going down this, like, uh, forest-type road, you know, like jungle almost, and then the road started narrowing. Freshly paved road. Nothing but woods. No houses, no people, nothing. Koalas all in the trees. It was gnarl. Guy says, as far as I can go. We all get out of the bus. We walk over to the hill, and we looked at it. That was a 60-mile-an-hour hill straight in your face with greater cheese, greater walls coming out of the turns and drop-offs into the jungle where we were told, don't go there. There's animals that will definitely kill you. And it was almost vertical. I mean, this hill profile, you had a hard time walking up this thing. Wow. At the start line, the street losers had to hold on the pegs to keep from shooting down this hill. Well, they couldn't even just use enough friction on the ground with their hands. They couldn't hold, wow. they could, or their feet. Like, they were, their legs were shaking trying to keep them, like, it was like this. It went to an off-camber left. Wait, it went a quick right into this ditch in this cheese grater jagged cliff wall. A couple of riders got hurt real bad right there. Then it dropped into this off-camber left, and then it just parachute dropped down. You had so much momentum... When you hit the bottom, it shot back up a real quick short one, mm-hmm. and you could feel the G-force. It was so fast. And then it went up over this bridge, and then you made a left into the finish line. There was a moat there full of, like, sea snakes, bat jet in there. Don't, like, don't go there either. <laughs> so in that race, Gary and I, we were competing. On the way home from the airport, we decided to make a team. And Gary had... Um, I had Jimmy Flinton Reed, and Gary had DT and uh, Mark Golter. And when he told me it was Mark Golter, when they had the X Games I told you about here in San Diego that mm-hmm. I saw on television, Mark was supposed to compete in that. But he was on the freeway, bombing the freeway, and a truck hit him. The that le- was the story I heard. So the legend... He's gotten which ran I, over I more love. than I care to hear. Is it like the legend is that he was like trying to go under a semi-truck? No, that was a second truck, and it rolled over him. Okay, so there's some credence to this. Cause, oh, cause, absolutely true. Because I love these stories. It's so absolutely true. The legend is that he like got, was trying to go under a semi-truck, and it rolled over him and broke his pelvis, and then he did it again. No, the first okay. time he was at Volcom okay. and decided he was going to bomb a freeway. Okay. Batched. Bad thing, bad mistake. Okay, so but what we're trying so to say my, here is that like Mark a Golter, trucker got pissed off at him. Mark Golter used to be pretty fucking cool. <laughs> the bus driver, the truck driver, got pissed because he was like messing with. Because he was skateboarding on the fucking freeway. So he ran him off. The second time, 
<laughs> he was shooting a gap and saw this semi parked at a gas station. He was going to be super cool and bomb underneath it. And he slid out when his momentum stopped. Just so happened that driver was in the truck, put it in gear, and ran over him. Pretty sure that's a true story. Like, this <laughs> I can't is make that about. shit up. I can't exactly. Make that shit Why up. would you lie about that? <laughs> like, it would be, like I would I would be more ready to like be like I don't know if that really happened if the story was that he made it. The story was like, oh yeah, he bombed under the semi and it was super sick. He didn't make but it the, at all. The part where he got run over, like, why would you make that up? So why would you go underneath a semi? At, you know, okay, because no, uh, because Rick, that would be pretty cool. Okay. If you pulled it off, that yeah, would have been yeah, legendary. It would have been legendary. So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> if like if Mark Coulter is the kind of guy who like didn't make it into the like didn't make it to the X Games event because he decided to bomb a freeway, like to me, that's pretty cool. I'm not saying that he hasn't. He's not a different guy now. But no, for him throwing it out just for ch- chuckles and grins is awesome. That's you know that that's a part of our lifestyle. Yeah. We see a hill. So, I mean, you know, it turns you on, you're going to do it. I mean, regardless of the consequences. So I have this impression from the what little I know about this time period that because of the type of people who were attracted to this stuff especially at that time because when like the technique and the gear were not super developed at this point, like it was a lot more dangerous than it is now. It used to crash a lot, right? Right. That the impression that I have is like the dregs guys were mostly just like they were into a ton of weed, mm-hmm. but that there was definitely maybe a cadre of other folks who were maybe into some stimulants. Uh-huh. Is that accurate? That's spot on. Okay. Which, ironically enough, um, I'm just going to say what I feel. You can edit what you want. Oh, please. Okay. So everyone kind of looked at me as, you know, the elder. They were all young, none had right, families. Right, because you were in your 30s, like I, a totally you know, different deal. I'm a roofer. Their parents were right, you you know, a career giving them like, money. And, yeah. You know, they had a free ride to go travel. No responsibilities. I had tons. Right. So they all really looked up to me. And many years later, Dane set me down. Dan Bombamo. Yeah. He set me down and told me like it was. These guys were not bear racers. They were cheaters. Even my teammates, they were cheaters. They were high on stimulants and God knows what else. Right, because like bombing under a semi-truck starts to make a lot more sense if you're like just zooted on crank. Oh, no, that's a different story altogether. Okay. I mean, uh, he was not. That's one thing I can say about him. Okay. He's a straight shooter. All right. I mean, he's, 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 he's clean. Okay. He didn't even drink. But, but some of these other guys were a little bit messed up. Party, well, party animals. Right. Like I said, no town wanted us back, dude. Right, that's we what somebody told me about. We were out of control beyond words. What did somebody tell I think it was Randy Madrid told me about Jarrett Iwanek. They said, oh, yeah, they called him Dr. Gofast, but it had nothing to do with. Tweaker. Right, it had nothing to do that's with. That's why I was with, there for a half a day. Right, it had nothing to do with skateboarding. To get through stuff. three measurements was three hours. Right. It was ridiculous. But I never thought in that terms. Right. Because I was doing my thing, which was in Clutyville most of the time, raising a family, doing what I had to do, and doing mass red eyes. Right. I left my house on Thursday, flew to Australia, 
I was back home by Monday. Holy Because there was a day difference in the time. Right, so you gain a day on the way back. So, I so basically, you could stay for the race and still be at work on Monday. I literally, everywhere I went, I couldn't experience the, all of it. Like a, a weekend I, warrior. I went to race. The only thing I did was race. When we finished that race, we always partied the night before. Okay. Every race. Hard. The night before. Oh, people throwing up the next yeah, morning. Yeah. I mean, laying in the middle of the street. I needed three beers just so I could get down the hill again. <laughs> you know, we, and we were raising hell. Yeah. I never knew that they were on high. Right. Not just alcohol. You didn't know? No. You couldn't tell if somebody was no, on I, no, meth? No, no. Wow, you just thought they were like they just. Well, had a lot I thought of, it was adrenaline. They were just peppy. I acted the same as they did. Okay, right, because because it was exciting. So exciting, dude! Everywhere we went was ridiculously exciting. And when you're rolling around the world like with a gang who's all doing the same crazy deal, we were the I, same I, group I of guys. It. it was like NASCAR. Yeah, there were no new people. Right, biker wouldn't allow it. Right, you saw the same IGSA, guys in every city. IGSA had, were the same group. Yeah, we'd have seventeen to twenty riders start, and by the time we raced, there was like twelve of us left. They either got hurt or got scared. So we were a tight group, and everywhere we went, we were together. I mean, super tight. And we all, gentlemen, raced each other. Everybody cared about each other. No one tried to, you know, go into a turn hot just because he had to win so, well, one guy did, but um, so hot that you knew you might take that other guy out just to win that race. It wasn't like that. When we won the race, I took my shots when I could. Yeah, and I love drafting because of NASCAR. I, I'm a pro at drafting. I mean, I sat behind Roger Rahicki all the way down the hill with my helmet literally, occasionally touching his ass. Yeah. When we just for the finish line, I fanned out just enough to back off him, put my head down, put my foot as hard as I could on that front of that board, almost coming off it, blew right by him. Because I like doing that, you know. And us as a group. That's how we raced because there was no pre-drifting. Right. You know, you weren't going into a turn so hot you had to grab your rail. No, these were grip tracks. Yeah, all the wheels that we were getting, the wheels we were getting, we wanted grip. Right. Last thing we wanted is the wheels slip out. You guys make them. Right. But, I mean, at this point, we make wheels as grippy as they can be, and we learn how to slide them. I mean, the wheels we ride now are 70 millimeters wide. They're 74A. They're so grippy that we have to have all kinds of provisions of like screws in our decks and stuff to spike into our shoes so we don't slide off them when we slide. Because when you slide, they bite and they slow you down so hard. Really? Absolutely. So we that's, make, why, like, you, th- that's make, why you guys pre-drifted. We pre-drift because it's, it, you can brake harder and faster than a foot brake most of the time. And you can slide like on a line towards the apex of the turn because you don't have to just foot brake in a straight line. Right. But, yeah, absolutely. The, they, the wheels slow you down so hard. The braking power is tremendous. Well, if in my youth at 30, mid-30s, early 40s, I don't think you guys could beat me with my foot braking. Oh, because of where thing. I do it and the timing that I do it is that you are slowing down in the turn. And then you pick your speed back up. Well, we almost use a pre-drift now in the same way. It's just like you do with a car where we brake early, hook back up, and then do the turn. We don't, we don't slide all the way deep in anymore. That's right. You guys are freaking athletes now. But still, but like a really good foot brake, like Pete Connolly was talking about this, that he's a, probably one of the best foot breakers in the world. And he's, he's absolutely right that he did his braking up here, and he's accelerating while I'm slowing down. That's right. And he's doing it all with fresh wheels. 
That's right. You know, he doesn't blow the edges off in the first turn. He's got, he's got fresh wheels at the last turn, and that can really be an asset. And it would be good for me, for sure, if I knew how to foot brake, too. I mean, I know how to foot brake, but if I knew how to do it well enough to use it in a race, better than sliding. Right. But at this point, like, the writing's on the wall that the, the places you can put a slide, and you can slide on way more fucked up pavement than you can reliably foot brake. But I would say that that type of stuff is absolutely true, that if, if we were to go back in time and be on the same gear, at, you know, if, if I'd started skating at the same time as you... I'm sure that you would that we would have been on the same level, or if you you might have been better. You know, we can't say with the benefit of hindsight that oh, because I know how to slide now, that I could have gone back then and beaten all the footbreakers with sliding. If we'd been on a level playing field, I'm sure it would have been just that. Well, today's racing has evolved, right? Beyond words. Yeah. And uh, the same your statement about the gear we had was conducive to the races we were running. Right. The gear that is made today is conducive to the races that are being run today. Yeah. A lot of switchbacks, a lot of 90 degrees. Right. My legs would never hold up one run. Oh, yes, they would. You no, I'm saying if you had the foot brake a lot. Oh, yeah. At speed. Because mm-hmm. every time you do that, you're really burning you know, muscles to where the sliding is more of an art form that you're not really using those muscles. It's different, yeah. It's very but, but different. You, just need, you need to be an athlete. But uh, again, the, the courses are so turny now. Yeah. It's not a drag strip anymore. No. Well, some of them are, but, but usually not. They're, I love a drag strip. Right. That's the best. It's the less chances of dying. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but I don't know if that's a good thing. True. Depends on what you're after. So, so when you went to Australia, and, and that, like at that point you're doing, you know, when did you go to Brazil? That's another interesting story, really, because um, I had, my memory isn't, crystal clear yeah, but um i just lost sandy and i couldn't race my head was messed up yeah i just there was i raced my entire career but one year every year up until two years ago yeah i have a podium for every single year i raced in 23 years um my head wasn't on right um, I used to go to Dave Rogers' house just to kind of get my shit together sometimes as an escape. Yeah. And I'd help him. He had this really tall chimney. It was fun. We tore it down. And, you know, we we messed with his roof a lot. Of, he's got an A-frame. And, you know, I re-ridged yeah, it for him. Yeah, I did a lot of work on his roof for him. And uh, it was a way to get out. And him and I talked about it is that we decided that we've been the risk and people were, you know, we decided and I decided that Gary Hardwick's record that he held should be broken the same way. So, so tell me about that record. What was Gary Hardwick's record? 62-something. Yeah, that's what I thought. And where did he set it? Uh, Arizona. Okay. It was, and how uh, did he set it? What was the same way? Well, it was a venue where the, all the downhill riders, the pros... They were all invited to the hill. Oh, so he didn't shut it down like and just get it himself. He wanted to be the fastest with all the fastest. Actually, games. somebody else did that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you who, but an organization or somebody set that up. Cool. For all the riders, not Gary or anybody else. Right. Everybody showed up. Well, they had this humongous like three-story ramp that they went down. From what oh, I heard. Cool. I didn't. To know get about the that. speed they needed to break the record. So Gary. Did you know what the record was before that? Yeah, it was Roger Hickey's. I think fifty-three mile an hour. Or oh, something. okay. It was in the fifties. 
it went from Rogers fifty. He he did hold the world record. Yeah. To Gary sixty two. Misho's didn't count when he did risk. Right. Well, because it was sort of unofficial. And I I don't think that um, as much as I love him to death, I don't think that. Um, can't believe I'm blanking out right now. He broke it right behind. He went to wrist and broke it too. Um, no, um, Kyle. Yeah. I don't think either one of them count. Yeah, Misho's was sort of. I believe that he went that fast, but the circumstances of the record were sort of. You know, I know I know the guy who did the timing. I think it was legit. But it's sort of unlegit because it, it didn't count for Guinness because it was on an open road. Well, you have to have a representative of Guinness to actually break that record. Right, that so, so obviously that wasn't going to fly. But I do believe the speed trap was legit. Kyle's, I don't think was. But Well, it brings us to Brazil. Yeah. Is that we decided that um, we would contact the people in Brazil who ran Teutonia. Yeah. And explain to them that we would like to have a world record event there. They agreed. Well, why wouldn't they? Dave and I were kind of like um, representatives, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, mentors of the sport. You know, uh, they treated us. I mean, I've never been treated. I mean, I've been treated like royalty before, but not at that level. Wow. I mean, they really were thrilled that the Americans were coming there, and we basically brought the world to Teutonia. And it was Dave's efforts and mine that made that event happen. That happened because the two of us, nobody ever knew that. And Dave Rogers was a humongous part of that because he's so well-spoken. Yeah. And he is legitimate champion. I don't know if you've ever seen his trophies, but they are sick. Right. He's got bitching trophies from around the world. So he had the clout. Right. He raced all over the place. He raced in South Africa. Yeah. He he had the clout to do this. Me... I think they were fascinated with Captain America, to be honest. Well, yeah, and you're a good talker. I don't know. I just, I don't think I am. But you are. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we decided to do it. And we went to the hill. And because it was a Brazilian contingency, is that I think that Daryl Freeman and Dave and me and Kevin was in it, you know, um, Guys that came there, uh, Meatball. Yeah. He came. It was a reunion of sorts to say kind of goodbye to Gary. Right. And the way we felt most appropriate that if his record was going to be beat, that would be how it would be beat. With everybody there. Because Gary Hardwick was serious, serious about downhill speedboarding. A lot of guys are passionate like me who love doing it. He was on the business end of that. That guy was driven to do 100 mile an hour and he made his own stuff we all experimented with all kinds of boards and any wheel out there bearings i'd spin my bearings for three four hours get all the oil out every time grease everything out of it decontaminate them and then i'd just put one little drop of different things i would find to mix it and i would just spin them to be as fast as i could yeah we i was a hill searcher and i was with um you know gary and um mark Riedemann. And Benelli camping. And he was telling me about all these events he's doing. Why don't you go to this and this and this? I go, I don't like the hills. He goes, what? 
I, I raced for hills. He goes, you mean to tell me you've been traveling all this and competing all this time just to ride the hills? I go, that's right. So it is about the hill. And I've been chasing the fastest hills in the world since we started, Gary and I both. If, 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 a, we, if we thought that hill would do 80, 90 mile an hour and we could get close to 100, we thought we would just draft a box truck and do it. Right. Because I've drafted car, draft cars that, that would really pull done. me really hard. You just got to believe in the driver, yeah. train with the driver, mm -hmm. and that hill, I'm not going to say I wish I could, you know, because I'm content with where I am in my life, but I would have definitely went to that hill because I've definitely been 80 mile an hour, and I definitely could have went 100 mile an hour. I know it's crazy to think about that. That at that the we top did it on hill, all, we did it on like uh, old stuff, man. Somebody definitely could have drafted. No one's ever drafted a car at the top speed hill. I don't know why nobody had. Well, because it's insane to do. Oh, and because you can apparently like uh, P. Connolly barely made the turn at the bottom at ninety miles an hour, so a hundred would be pretty. But hairball. But if he can go ninety with wind, hundred easy drafting a car. Easy. Yeah, no problem. And Gary was all about it. I think he was more about the 100 mark than I was. But, Matt, Rick, you would love that top speed hill. It's so easy. It's an elevator shaft. Yeah, it's the most extreme one I've ever ridden. It's like you go... See, I get off on that. You I, go zero to 80 miles an hour in, like, less than half a mile. See, I get off on that. Like, when you're standing at the top and you're looking at the bottom, you're like the ocean's at the bottom, and it looks like it's up to the ocean because it's so steep. And the, the, for the first time I wrote it, I tucked at the top and was like, all right, I'm going to see how far I can tuck. And then I just was at the bottom. It and you're like, oh, easy. crap, oh, crap, I like, can do this awesome. for one. Let's do it all day. Like, it's the greatest. That hill never thought about running that hill. And well, I know there's... not even know about it until 2007. There is a hill on this planet. If it's not paved yet, there is a hill on this planet that someday... Somebody's going to break 100 miles an hour. Oh, I no mean, question. They're all, you guys are already hovering all over it. I mean, and I know there's a legend about maybe uh, China talking about building a hill. They should. For that. They should. Just for that. And, you know, again, you know, you've you got to give it all you got in your young buck youth days. Yeah. You have to or you'll regret it, you know. Any experience you can get, I prefer profoundly say go after it because we're like a pebble on a sand sandy beach in this universe you know think of one pebble yeah. one grain of sand that's our lifespan as opposed to the universe in the age a hundred years is a blink of an eye right when you're talking stuff that lasts thousands of years right you know been on this earth for millennial time we only have a little bit of time and it starts going by real fast. Me, I only got 20 more years left on this earth. Realistically, I burned through 10 grieving. Right. So, you know, it puts your life as you're young. A lot of youngsters don't think about what they're doing of what, how much time they have left. Right. So, I mean, the skateboard and what we do with the speed and the 100 mile an hour mark, I'm almost positive I'll be alive when they break it. I bet you that if they find the right hill, they'll have that thing broke within the next five years. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, look it's, at the speeds, it's how quick spot, they went up. You know, that's kind of it. Well, think about it. Roger Hickey's speed in the fifties right. was what? Eighties? Seventies, probably late seventies. Late, maybe early eighties. Yeah. You know, somewhere in that realm. 
when the bearings just started to have their caps on them or right. didn't fall out no more? Right, he was still on Kryptonics. I mean, I don't know yeah. that part of it. But then, within a decade or two, it went 60. Right. And then, again, another decade goes by, you're crushing it. Right. The speed went from like a 10, 12 mile hour difference to a 20 mile an hour difference. Yeah, like 90 miles an hour is so not 60. Huge. So, so when, it, when you went to Brazil, what year would that have been? 2005, six? I don't I have something like that because the meatball was there, and oh, the 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 Guinness World Record. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, uh, like I said, it was a Brazilian contingency. Not that that had anything to do with yeah. it. Maybe a little, but some of the times weren't being clocked. Oh yeah. Well, they made us. They were. They made them wear red bibs, or yeah. uh, that would catch the. They, they were trying to do it high it was, tech. It was radar. It wasn't a speed trap like a tape switch or something That's right. that would click click. And like radar is notoriously right. unreliable. That's why you're like the cop has to give you five miles an hour like before That's they can right. ticket you. So that was kind of like a little shady to begin with. Well, they didn't get Bryson's time. Ugh. They didn't get Meatball's time. Uh, I'm not sure, but I don't think they got Daryl's time either. They had to redo it. So they kept redoing their times. A bunch of guys. But that's like that's but, already like bogus because the conditions change and well, Delua won it. Okay. And he officially got the title for the world record in Guinness. Huh. So he holds that record. Well, not anymore. Up until recently. Yeah. So, again, his record was mid-60s, maybe? Right. Not that much. Because right, Teutonia is legit not, a 70-mile-an-hour hill. If the conditions are right and they redo that damn road. Well, yeah. It's death. But even as it is now... Like, Delua and Misho and Kevin are cracking 70. They're real close to it. Yeah. They're hovering it, definitely. But it's, so, but it's not like, it's not a solid mid-70s hill. You have to be one of the fastest guys ever to touch 70 there. So it makes That's sense right. that his record would be in the mid-60s. So, like, so Gary's record was only edged out by, like, that much. That's right. Okay. Interesting. Fast forward. Crushed it. What's the record now? 90? 90? 91. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. It is crazy. You stand there and watch somebody go by that fast. The sound it makes is so like nothing else. A human being riding on a skateboard, 90 miles per hour. Well, I'm It's almost inconceivable. At some point, would the wind blow you off? So Pete Connolly went in the wind tunnel when he was preparing for that. And he found that the wind blew him off at about 130. And another guy... See, has also done it doable. and got blow off, blown off also at about 130. And he said he didn't feel it like it wasn't slow. He like popped off at 130. Yeah, he got he got a, a, a ther- like a, he a got bubble a, built. He up. got a thermal draft and, and it just, lifted. Yeah, because of the air flow so going so fast. For sure doable, but it seems like 130 might That's be the limit. That's interesting. And if you were cocky enough to go that fast and come off that board, that would really suck. Unless it was a perfectly straight hill. You Depends know, on how you came off it. Right. Motorcycle racers fall off that fast all the time. Right. You don't get hurt. Yeah, that's true. No, so, you know, the sport is evolving, and, you know, the race with Delua and getting to know them, um, that was the most interesting adventure I've ever had in my life. I mean, Brazil was amazing. The people there were amazing. Was Cliff Coleman there? 
Actually, he was, and I, I got mad at him. Oh, why? He really, well, Bryson scared the shit out of me, and uh, Cliff Coleman pissed me off all within an hour. <laughs> okay. We were partying up on the hill. They gave us bitching, like, freaking chateau-type apartments, and it had, um, you know, the old wood stove burning yeah. things. Well, Bryson being Bryson start stoking it. I mean, uh-huh. it's on fire at this point. Smoke everywhere, billing out. I'm like, dude, no, you can't do that. It's like, what, man? This is cool. Yeah. Like, no, man, no, Classic man, no. Style. And it's like, you can't do that. You can't do that. So I'm being Papa Clutie. It's fine. And see, so he's like, okay. And then Cliff was like, you don't tell a guy who's getting ready to race the most dangerous hill on the planet the night before Rick, you got four kids at home. You're their sole support. You could easily die here, and they're not going to help you. you got to think, and he's laying all this heavy trip on me. And I was just, like, furious. I couldn't race the hill. I couldn't compete. So Cliff just totally, like, planted that, and you couldn't shake it. Couldn't shake it. I woke up the next day, and I made one run, and I'm like, no, that's it. Too dangerous. Yeah, I couldn't do that. Well, oh my God. guys were crashing and their bones were like popping out. And they're oh, like, mean, they tape it up and say, go on your way. Right. Like I've never been to Tutonia, country. But I love romantically just the scene of Teutonia. Like oh, yeah. One of my favorite skate photos of all time is that photo of a Brazilian guy like halfway down the pitch of the hill and he's in blue leathers and he has no helmet on. And he's just like this, like charging it, like eyes wide open. And that's like that's Teutonia to me, like all the way through. That it's like the worst road in the world. It's so fast, and like if you fall, like you just fucking die. And like they pull you off the hill, and they, they keep going. I love that. That's exactly <laughs> what they do. And you know, but, they, I, but I've also never been, so that tells you how like I I really do want to admire it, maybe a little bit from afar. <laughs> well, you know, the the the, the locals there, um, they had this saying that they have blood in their eyes. Yeah, I I believe that. No question. No question. They say one moto boy dies there every single, did he say hour? Every hour of every day, somebody dies there on the motor because like, there's thousands of them, and they go through traffic. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just crazy dangerous. And, you know, they're like, well, you know, their lives and the way that they live is so, like, there's no way of getting out of the situations they're in, a lot of them, because right. they're in that environment in that country and there's no way out kind of like me in North Carolina at the time as a child there's no way out but some of them through skateboarding like myself found a way out I mean but they don't lose all that blood in their eyes though uh, I've raced a few of them the youngsters no yeah and they're not afraid to throw it out right but it's interesting to see the Brazilians that I've been racing against for 10 years they race way different now I, I, they are way less likely to risk everybody's lives for a pass anymore. They're a lot smarter. Well, uh, you know, you find out when you're mortal yeah. is that second that something happened, like gravity gave us providence. I hit the hay so hard. I, you know, first time I really, truly crashed. I hit the hay so hard instantly. Fuck. 
I'm not Captain America at all. I'm actually mortal. Right. Because well, I took I, on that character. I mean, I'm right. invincible, you know? Can't hurt me. I always got up. Always got up. Well, we talked about this uh, at home that, like, I, I've seen so many people get in and out of downhill skateboarding over the last 10, 15 years. They don't stay very long. But the, it, all, it all comes down to a, a lot of, not all of it, but a lot of it comes down to how they handle their first big one. Yep. The first time somebody takes a shot that scares them bad, that they really see that they could have died. And 80% of people don't make it past that one. They skate, if, they skate maybe for the next six months. Yep. It's, you can't get them out of sessions anymore, and then they're gone. Because they just got that one guardrail bounce where they're like, oh, my God, that was really almost it. Well, you had that scary moment when you hit the guardrail in oh, Colorado. Jeez, man, yeah. I mean, and, I, and I, I got, remember you sharing that. I didn't really even get that screwed up. That was the one where Kavika shattered his back. But I, but I definitely I was fortunate and then saw him you know, be really messed up. But, but absolutely, that was a big one for me. But I, we, we were skating that hill the next week. So you and Gary were obsessed with 100 miles an hour. I, I need to hear about this onshore board. <laughs> oh. Um, so you guys were working on your gear. So at this point, like at what point did you get the Randall Luge trucks? And no, no, them aren't Randall Luge trucks. What are those? They're Randall skateboard trucks, bro. Oh, they're the 180s. That was one of the first batches that he made. Uh, Gary actually um, tested those trucks before they were even on the market. So when did you go to the floating axles from the regular hangers? About the time I got the helmet. Okay, so 99, 2000. Oh, yeah. Okay. And um, I started switching over um, because of Gullwing. What was Gullwing uh, the, doing? The Gullwing trucks that are on the market today, Yeah, that was pretty much me and Walt. Walt was the owner of Gullwing in the 70s. And, yeah. You know, he, he, he was Gullwing, Gullwing Truck Company. They only made pool trucks and slalom trucks and, uh, you know, popsicles. Yeah. Just trucks. Well, Darren Kessing was riding for Gullwing. And he was racing on like pool trucks, right? Much in the same way like Danzy was riding Indies. Like they, those well, were them not, two were buddies. Yeah, you know they were good buddies. Um, well, I used to go over to Goldwing after work, and I would sit down and just talk with him. He loved chatting with me, and we would bite bushings together. And he'd tell me the history. He'd pull one out, and say, "I've had this in my desk for five years. Check this out." And we just really got along. So I brought in my uh, Randall board to show him what I wanted to make. And when I brought it through the door, he says, you can leave that outside, Rick. And I, all right. Well, I just wanted to show you this truck because I'd really like to have a speed truck other than this one because I don't really, it's not all that. And I, I you know, would you make me one? Yeah. He goes, I tell you, because at this point, I've been going over there like three times a week for um, months. We, I just loved being over there with him. And um, he says, i tell you what I'll do. I'll make you the truck. You give me input as long as you're doing it just for fun. Because that's the only way I'll make this for you. It's like we're not going to do anything with it. That's just where it's going to end with you, okay? But I'll make it. Sure enough, he pulled one out. And I, I was, I was a 30-degree guy. Yeah. Had to be. So he, the first truck he made was um, like a 45. He did everything based on what I was telling him. 
the angles, the, the change of the truck um, bolt, and then he took his base plate and reversed it and created the speed truck from that. Okay. So he kind of took what he already had. Right, because there was a going truck in the 80s with, with a 45-degree kingpin. Yeah, he made, he made all kinds of experimental stuff, yeah. too. He was, he was into it like I was. So the very first one, I took to Donner Pass. Okay. Oh, my God. Best riding I ever did, and I almost died three times. <laughs> it was so responsive that it was scary. Right, 45 is a big jump from 30. Humongous. And Gary, again, he, Gary used to always give me crap, man. He, you know, I love the guy. And he's the guy that was high and forgot to tighten his nut on his wheel and would start taking off and the wheel would fall off, you know. And he's giving me crap about testing stuff. Right. And he's the one that tested the trucks that they had for the Randalls. And um, then I took it back to Walt. He kept playing with it. And then he got it right. Well, Walt went out of business and sold it to Sector 9. Right. Well, when he sold it to Sector 9, he did it with me following. They inherited me for that truck because I basically, I, was, I designed it. So did that become the Goldwing Charger? That's right. Cool. And um, at the same time, they had just hired Jeff Boudreau, mm -hmm. and he was like the team manager. Yeah. And... Back in the Mammoth days, the team was Rob Moult, Sector 9. I know Rob Moult, yeah. Well, they had this big, beautiful Sector 9 truck, and he was the only one in there, and they wouldn't let any other riders but Team Sector 9. Right. You know, we were shunned from the truck. They had their buddies in there, whatever. Um, well, when I went over there, I met Jeff for the first time, and he was telling me what they were doing, and I says, well, you kind of inherited me from Goldwing. And he's like, well, you know, we're not sure what we're going to do with that right now. They had the big container trailer in the side of their warehouse, all locked up. So where the, when Walt gave, mm -hmm. you know, they did the transaction. And he had a board of trucks, just this big board with all the trucks he had made so they can choose what's one they wanted to manufacture. And Jeff's like, they think they're going to change the name to Sector 9, and they want to make wills too. They want a complete board Sector 9. Yeah. And I says, you know, Jeff, Come here, let me show you something. Can you unlock that? He goes, yeah, let me get the key. He unlocks it, and we start walking through it. I took this hat off the shelf. Oh, I'm getting a little goosebumpy, too, now. I took the hat off the shelf, and I handed it to him. I took another hat and set it on the counter. I go, do you really, honestly, want to change that logo? And the history of that logo and the heritage of that company really? And I gave him a couple stickers. He went right in that office and says, we're not changing it, we're keeping it going. That's the only reason that there's still go wings right now. Right where everything on the market would be Sector 9 pool trucks, speed trucks, and they had we made three. Again, I, you know, I gave so much away, I don't even have a, I had a, a stash of trucks and I gave them away. And I don't even have one set of the original batch. Certain things you regret you didn't save, but you can't save everything. Yeah, man. Or it, might, it would be just ridiculous. So that's how Goldwing came into with the Sector 9, and then they started making wills. Well, once they started making wills, that's when the X Games dumped IGSA. They were still holding races at Benelli. Right. No street losers were coming. 
four or five, six. Yeah, no, no glory. Right. Certain guys are all about glory. Certain guys aren't. So sector nine would give Victor the the bus, the short bus. Right. They called it the Chronicle bus or something. Well, they t let Victor take me to these races. So I'd show up at the races and won a bunch of them. Nice. I got a whole box of medals from them. So these straight Hillbinelli races or with the turn? It was straight. Okay. It was all just straight, you know, um, going. Well, I filled the bus with riders. So when we got there, there was like the guys from Canada were coming down because they loved the camping and they loved the whole, you know, country vibe of country racing. Well, it was warm there. It was, yeah, there is that. And um, they would come down. Plus so we go ride GMR. Right. So we had the, um, we had a contingency there of stand-up riders. You know, between me bringing half the race, the Canadians coming, and a few guys from the area, they kept holding races. And then from there, the word of mouth got around. It started growing. The kids I was teaching started teaching people, and then it started taking off again. And the same with the race courses going on. It's just, it goes through its phases. And right now, the outlaw races aren't as prevalent as they were. Yeah, 10 years ago or whatever. But Oh, yeah. So... Tell me about Barrett. Well, I got proof that Barrett Junction is at least 20 years old. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I don't think anybody's disputing that. The first time we saw Barrett, this guy, um, Frank Waterhouse, right, lived so he there. Lives, he lives right near me now. Oh, really? He lives in Allens Park, Colorado. I knew he lived in Colorado. Yeah. Well, He's, Gary. He came out and, and skated a little bit probably seven or eight years ago. And he definitely, he's ridden his gravity bike around with us a little bit. But, but he lived in the house, right? That one little, That's right. little house on Barrett. All I had in the house was this humongous pool table. That's all I had. I'm yeah. not sure if they slept on it or not. So, so you found out about it through Frank? He put on the first racer. Okay. Non-EDI. That's right. Just a race. Yeah, the only reason the IGSA and EDI did it is because of Frank. Okay. They didn't even know that hill existed. Um, Why would anybody know that hill existed, you know? Right? Well, we, Gary and I got a map, and we went out to look for it. We found it, didn't think it was it, went to another hill. Because you found Barrett Junction, and you're like, this is not the hill. No How way. That be chunked up, cracked up old ass road with all the cliffs. and. This is something that, like, as a shared experience that a large number of us have, is the first time you drove up Barrett with the intent to skate is like as an experience that is common to many people. Like the first time I drove up it in the back of a truck and was like, no. It's a visual. This isn't for us. It's <laughs> but a then visual. it's fine. It rides fine. Well, I don't know anymore, but back then it rode fine. Stay out of the potholes, it still is. But it's, so in 2000, in like the year 2000, it had to be a lot smoother. It was incredibly deceiving. Right. Because... The street losers is the reason that road's the way it is, mostly, because they chunk the road up, you know, all the cracks and stuff. Uh -huh. Well, because it's so low to the ground, they beat it and vibrated it to death. So I blame them. All right, you heard it here, folks. Street Primarily. losers ruined Barrett. Yeah, they, they ruined Barrett. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the hill itself, we were there... Well, I've been there so many. I used to go there for days. Right, and just camp out. I go out there and... for 
I'd go there and ride that first right for hours, just the right. Walk back up and run and run and run and run. Love that first ride. It's my favorite. Um, the road itself, I'm pretty sure that I hit that fence at the bottom doing close to 60 mile an hour. Yeah, I think and that's In the beginning reasonable. days, we had a, a tailwind, mm -hmm. like 45 mile an hour tailwind. Yeah. The heavy, te heavy devil winds at the time, which we get those here. Right. And that's when the roads, like any road, scary because most people's tendencies is to put their arms in the air. Right, and you don't go any. The air brake. You can go faster. Yeah, you know, it's scary. You got to stay in tuck, man. You can't break your tuck. And I've hit that fence so many times. When you guys go there, take a look at that fence. That fence is all me. <laughs> you sure there's not any DT in that fence? No, he never made it to the fence. Oh, okay, that's right. He, he always belly flop. Oh yeah. yeah, he would okay, belly flop before he even me. got to the fence. <laughs> But, um, again, I was a footbreaker, and you guys shocked me when you pulled a slide off at the bottom of that hill. I was blown away. Right. That was amazing because it looks like you, it's impossible to do. But it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's a deceiving road. That road, if you're going to be a world-class downhill skateboarder, world-class, you have to train on crappy roads. Yeah, totally. Because even me, we trained on that road a lot. And when we got to a hill that was butter, game changer. It's right, Calvin hard, was saying this hard last to beat week us. that like there's kind of nothing like if you're gonna do, especially if you're gonna do a world tour, if you go to Barrett at the beginning of the season, like it just your tolerance level for bad pavement just gets reset. Like you go and do Barrett in January, like the whole rest of the year, you're like everything's rideable, everything's fine. It is, and you know the main thing. Is, that, oh my God, we've had Doc go fast. His life pretty much ended on that hill. Right. Because he hit Doc's, Doc's corner and he had to peg luge. And when he hit the corner, he'd come out wide, which I've done a few times if we have a tailwind. You, it kind of pulls you out and everything's an embankment there. So it had like an embankment with a lip on it. It kind of come up like that. Mm -hmm. He hit it just wrong and it flipped him upside down. And there was another rider right on him, drafting him, followed him right into it. And he had a peg luge too. Hit him right in the back of the head and the helmet and compressed his spine. Oh. I held him for quite a long time. I held his head until the helicopter got there. Whoa. So, um, you know, we have history as well. And Barrett has a lot of hit. Chris Chaffet. Yes. He comes flying. He's just flying being Chris, dude, doing that crazy ass back leg foot yeah, break and his it, legs like almost stretched off his body yeah. and he gets his other foot back on and you're behind him going damn he made it so <laughs> listeners if you're looking for a laugh uh you probably don't know who chris chapit is because he hasn't been around for a little while so you won't find it as funny as rick and i might but if you go on youtube and search for a video called the mongo tango uh it's still there and uh enjoy chris um <laughs> He come out of the turn, he made it. And then we get down to the next, there's two rights at Barrett Junction. Yeah. Uh, the first right is um, more toward the top at a, you know, a pretty steep incline. And it's really fun to ricochet around it. It's, for the most part, um, safe, so to speak. Right. Um, the second one, you go down the hill, you make a left, you go into the chicane. It's got patches of bad road, good road, and you got to pick your line through there. And then it comes up into a 90-degree 
like um, cheese grater asphalt or concrete turn that um, you got to nail that one perfectly. And he gets to that one and he pulls his back leg off and it stretches like stretch man. And you're like, oh, he's for sure going down this time. He has to, no way. And he foot breaks Mongo. He foot breaks with his front foot. Yeah. And it, and it pulls his leg back, right. so it, it looks really so weird. It's like human beings can't do that to begin with, more or less get it back in front of the other foot. It was art or survival. I think it was more survival than anything it else. It could be both. It could be both. <laughs> Got out of that, and you know, at that point, we were closing up the pack a little bit. And uh, he veers out to the, there was cat tracks there. There still are. Not like it used to be. Okay. Used to be that road was another two foot wider. Oh, I see. And when it had a fire, they had a caterpillar, you know, cutting for fire, uh, fire breaks. Mm -hmm. Well, the road was so hot that it created a caterpillar track that was two inches deep. And when you hit it, it went, <laughs> well, it went on all the way to, you know, where the chicane starts, you go to the left and then the right. Mm -hmm. There was another one, just one that went across. And if you didn't hit that perfectly, you were on the ground. He hit the top one incorrectly and broke his thumb. Oh. It was just a thumb, I know, but it was still like, he fell. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'd be racing Dave Rogers or John or something, and we'd all be racing hard, and one would fall, and you're like, no way. He I know, so we were saying that was the way I today, raced. Like, I knew there was 50-50. I could win. Right. If they crash, not, I win. We're not, you know, coming into this Barrett race ultra confident. It's been wintertime in Colorado. I definitely haven't been skating that much. And there are some people who are going to be there who are going to be really fast. But anything can happen in Barrett. That's why... Somebody could crash at any part of the hill, any run, and, and just drop out. Like, and nothing. Barrett is one of the races, honest, everybody has a shot to win it. Yeah. I don't care. Well, I, that's a lie, too, because I fell. Wait. Danny Connor fell in the first turn. He caught me by the second turn. I'm talking the hard rights. Yeah. Damn near caught me. I'm like, damn. Fell again. We got down to the finish line. He damn near passed me at the finish line. Caught me three times. So, tell, so Danny Connor started showing up when he was like 15, right? His yep, dad yep, brought yep. him out from the desert yep. to Barrett. No. No. So where was he, where did he start showing up? His his father, I forget how we met. His father brought him in a pickup truck out to me. Yeah. He met me on a hill. Cool. That's amazing. To teach him how to speedboard. That's why he brought him to me. And I had my helmet on when they showed up because I just loved walking the hill. Pulled my helmet off and his dad's mouth dropped because his son told him, I got this guy's going to train me. He's thinking someone close to his son's age. Right. And you're I, like, I'm like his father's age. I was yeah. his father's age. Yeah. And he's like, holy shit, you're not young at all. Don't let that fool you, man. I can still do it. Well, we took, I took Danny to the 70 mile an hour hill. Um, I told you that earlier, the name of the hill. Yeah. But um, we had a kid in the camera following us at this time and his father. And you can hear his father. I got all the tapes. His father's like, hang on, Danny. Hang on. And the, and the kid is in the back row going, 45 miles an hour. And then we go, 50 miles an hour? Hang on, son. Hang on. <laughs> it was hilarious, man. 
Because, you know, he's like, holy crap. His dad's never seen this before. No, never. And then the kid's like, they're at 58 miles an hour. And his voice is getting a little bit lighter. He's like, holy shit. We get through the last turn, and his father, you can just hear the sigh of relief in his voice that he made it. And, you know, I tried to teach Danny as much as I knew and drafting and passing and strategies and, you know, um, gentleman racing and pick your, choose your spots and air tucking and, you know, you break your tuck, I'm going to walk on you. Right. Because I don't even breathe when I race. I'll pass out before I'll flinch. I mean, I've, my time trials, I held my breath and I'm yeah. also claustrophobic. Oh, so, so that's interesting. I'm hyperventilating. That, that doesn't open. Yeah, and I'm hyperventilating at almost every event I've been in when I'm racing hard. Huh. And a lot of times I had to get somebody get my helmet off because I was in a panic attack. I think I've seen that. Yeah. I, I get, yeah, because I'm claustrophobic. Yeah. And that helmet is not even right for a claustrophobic person. Not dude. at all, man. And it's got that. Um, it's got the D ring. Mm-hmm. Well, so many years it started rusting a little bit, and I was having a moment. I couldn't get it off. It had rusted, and the thing it was, was a little sticky. on there for so many years. It was like glued uh. that way. And I was flipping out of my mind, and somebody came over, calmed me down. It's like, just calm down, calm down, hold your head up. Get it off, get it off. um, You know, (laughs) a lot of things, it's like I'm just stoked that, you know, I pulled it all off, and I still got my dog. Right, I mean, for better or worse. For better or worse. That thing has so many amazing smells in it, it would drive you crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I believe it. Oh, my God. Everything from boogers to beers. Everything in between. A couple of meals. <laughs> so in the 2000s, like 90s, 2000s era, who were the fastest guys? I mean, the guys who were consistent, the ones that you would like, if you lined up next to them, you're like, this is the one I really got to worry about. I didn't worry about any of them. I just wanted to beat the arrogant pigs. Okay. The, the, I wouldn't race just because they really upset me because how arrogant and they were. How cocky they were. Oh, extra hard. So who would that have been? As far as beating them in an actual race, I was never heated with them. But beating them riding, uh, both Chris Chapman and Mark Golter, both. Okay. Uh, But in an actual race, when we did race, um, they would beat me. Okay. Um, You know, but I was driven to beat them because. Racing for me was uh, um, it was something you did that you had to do to give a conclusion. You know, I raced in practice. I raced yeah. everybody. Right. That's, that's my the whole thing race that, like, we was talk practice. About is like you going slow is a learned behavior. Right. You know, you can go to if you go to an event if you if you start taking runs that are slow, you'll learn how to go slow. If you just go someplace and go as fast as you can all the time. You'll keep going fast. So, like, so the guys that I know about from that era, they're like the names that we know, like, uh, you know, anybody who was on Dregs and Mark Golter, Lee Danzi, uh, you, Caveman, those like those type of names. Who was like who was top three on a regular basis? You know, was there anybody who was like who rose to the top of that list? Yeah, there was Team Dregs. Because okay. they rigged all the races. Oh, I see. So, so like, was Lee Danzi faster than Todd Lair, faster Lee, than Lee, John Dredd? Yes. Uh, Lee Danzi was one of the top riders for sure. But they would stack the race so that... Well, they would stack the heats against, like, 
they so would all have, the other they fast would guys have, would race each other earlier, and they'd put each other exactly. out, and the dregs guys would kind of walk to the end? Exactly. Ugh. And they used to go, uh, you know, they would go, you do time trials. Right, so how does the qualifying format work to make it so that they could manipulate the brackets? Because they did the time trials. What? And then they went to their trailer at night, and they put... And they doctor the, it. They put what? Well, they're the only ones that had the times. They never, oh my God. they never showed you the time you got. Wow! Oh, one race in Donner Pass. Everyone on that hill said I probably got, if not the fastest time, I was one of the fastest riders on that time trial that day, because I gave it every ounce of energy I had in that one run, because I knew that would determine where I'd stack up against these guys. Get to the bottom, and I'm all like hyped up out of breath. I say, dude, you were flying. Uh, Tell him he has to do a, a redo. A kid ran across the street and tricked the timing. Uh, like that was BS. There wasn't even no kid up there, man. Well, that's just me, but you know. And again, you know, the heats that I would get would be one of the fastest guys because I was middle of the pack. Mm-hmm. I was constantly tenth, twelfth, seventeenth ish. So I was pretty much middle of that pack, and the dregs were always at the top, which I have. Coincidence or not. Pretty sure I got a race here. I love this photo. I've seen that one before. Oh, two. And I'm going to show you in writing who was at the top in that era. Ah, here we go. This is the overall points for EDI Series 1998-99 downhill skateboarding. So this is the end of the year. This is the end of the year in the rankings for all the riders. And he's there. Okay. Um, he's there. Dregs. Okay, so listeners, Biker Dregs. Sherlock is in first place. Todd uh, Lair. Uh, Roger Hickey is in 26th. And these were the cream of the crop right here. Right. All the way down to um, probably... At that time, Jimmy Flint. Yeah, that's like these are the names that I know of people who are really doing it. Because there, there are other names down here that I recognize, but that are not guys who I thought of as being top level premium riders. Yeah, and I at one year I was able to hold the number one in IGSA for a while. Nice. And that was globally. Right. When IGSA was actually. Yeah, I mean you're the like here. You're twelfth in the rankings, ninety eight, ninety nine. Like that's pretty respectable. Yeah, for my first year. Oh yeah, especially for your first year. No, I did. I did really good, and I picked it up pretty easily. I mean, I love the skateboard in general. So, and you can see, even when me standing up, I still got my toe on the edge of the board. Yeah, yeah, way off. I always wore my chucks. So, when um, tell me about the origin of the infamous Rick Clutie fake break, <laughs> Munsville. So, listeners, what the Rick Lutie fake break is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to, uh, so Rick would foot break uh, grabbing both rails and take his back foot off, um, but he could do it in such a way where, sometimes it was a little bit sketchy, and he could do it in such a way where he'd take his foot off and pretend like he was going to foot break and maybe wobble out, and everybody else behind him would just back off because they thought he was going to explode. But it was on purpose, and then he just put his foot back on and go through the turn without braking and leave everybody behind because they all slowed down to not hit him. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so so Munsville when? Oh, I don't know what date. Early um, 2000s? 
Probably. Okay. Um, I was really good at Munsville. I mean, that was my course, man. That it was fast. It was super fun, and it only had one ninety degree at the very bottom, and it was flat. So you're hauling ass, hauling ass, hauling ass, hauling ass, hauling ass. You get to that point, and then everybody has to negotiate that in the best way they can. Munsville, I think, it was Calvin's first race. Um, I don't remember who the very first victim was, but um, I was in a four-man heat, and I knew two of the riders for sure because I was good at slingshotting out of the top. There's a top left-hand turn. It's kind of in banks, super fun. Is I would excel out of that beyond words. That's where I got all my speed. And a lot of guys would be drifting out or air braking way before it to make sure they made it because you'd hit the hay at a high impact. So we went around that turn and I would slingshot them. And my idea was they were faster than I was. So my only chance of beating them was when we got down to the bottom. So I had to get past them with enough momentum to where they could get into my draft and pass me one more time because it was such a long you know, way down. And then I would get into a double draft. I would slingshot both of them, jump in front of them, and just right before the turn, I would grab both my rails, and I would take my foot, and I would dangle it. Both of them panicked, stood right up. Then I waited, 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 waited. Quick little foot break, hooked that turn. Both of them hit the hay. I took their lines away from them. And I, they were afraid I was going to fall off my board, too. So it worked really brilliantly for me. And then I've I, definitely seen you do it at Barrett, for sure. Oh, yeah. I incorporated that into all my racing. If I knew somebody was faster than me behind me, I could slow them up just with the thought of maybe I'm going to throw my foot down. Because I can stop with my foot pretty damn fast. I mean, way faster because when you pitch it out and slide, you keep going momentum. I can literally go from 60 to zero pretty quick. So, yeah, that was... Um, Munsville was the first time I ever did it. I actually got second place. The plaque's right up there. Wow. Nice. Yeah, it's on top of that VCR right there. Second place, Munsville. So what is, what is Cludyville? Cludyville is a state of mind. Okay. I don't know if I, we talked about this here at breakfast. Uh, uh, not really. And, and mostly, and I, and I want to hear you in your own words, and this is for the listeners. This is, gotcha. You know, I, th- I think I've got an idea what Cludyville is, but... Not everybody does. Well, I guess any, I don't know if you'd call me an athlete or not. but when I you're, would. When you're racing, um, you got to be focused on the race. You, call, you just say you're a competitor. I am a competitor. Absolutely. Okay, I like that one. That was better. Um, You've got to be focused on the task at hand. You can't be thinking about, you know, the riff you had with your, your spouse or, you know, the problems you're having financially or, you can't be thinking about that boss or that thing that happened at work sometime or something you got to do after the race or can't worry about your car being broke down. can't worry about things in life. And when I did my best race and everything in my life was true, I had all my clothes washed before I left. I cleaned everything. I made sure everything was done. I was at a race, and we were at Mammoth, and it was a scenic loop. And, that's uh, the one that's really iconic with the big old yeah. yeah, and when they repaved it now, it's 60 mile an hour hill, close yep. to it. We, I just did a few winners with Reed. Um, I was at the top of the hill, and uh, they, at that time they had like 110 street losers, uh, 
maybe 20, 26 stand-up guys, and um, the Street Losers had just finished up. And uh, they were calling all the riders up to the, to the top to get dressed. And the ambulance shows up. A lot of people start coming. And I just blanked out, completely blanked out. Um, I didn't hear anything around me, anybody around me. And my really good friend, Reed, come over to me and uh, asked me, what was I doing? Wake up. And I snapped out of it and looked at him. He says, Rick, this guy's been trying to talk to you. He wants to actually sponsor you, man. You keep blowing him off. What's going on? I go, well, I don't want to talk to him right now or anybody. And another writer's walking by, and I go, oh, he's in Cludyville again. And it's stuck from that day on. So Cludyville is just like that's when you're just where all your shit's tight and you're, in, you're locked in. Locked in. Um, there's nothing on my mind. And when I'm racing, I'm competing at a high level, and my mind is not thinking but one thing. Catch that guy. Catch that guy. Pass that guy, pass that guy, don't let him wreck you, pass him. You know, and after a while I just stopped talking to myself too, because it started distracting me. Because I'd literally be talking to myself down the hill. And then uh, after a while I just stopped doing that too. I was just focused. Because one little thing will take you off your board and it's pretty uh devastating when that happens. Yeah, well, that's and perfect. Dave will probably tell you I'm probably one of the better crashers that's ever lived. Not for yeah, I mean, practice makes something. Right? I'm really good at it. <laughs> Was really good at it. Hey, I bet you're just as good now as you once were. Just not as fast. I don't know. You might be just as fast as the last time you rode. I wouldn't be surprised. Let's, t- let's chat about where you're at now and kind of what brought you to the point where you're... Like, I don't want to say you're hanging it up, but if that's where you're at, that's fine. But... Uh, you were one of those guys who, like, every Barrett Junction I've ever been to was your last one, you know? Yeah. So what, what, why are, where are you at now, and how, did it, how is it maybe your last one? Um, I've had three retirement parties. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not talking little. Right. I'm talking legit. Um. Once at Barrett, they it was like the retirement. Cludy's retiring, you know. Uh, had a keg of beer in the sand or keg of beer out in the morning. Everyone in camp had a Budweiser opened. I think I, I think I might have been there. For yeah, that. that was a party, and it was my last one. A lot of the times I would get hurt, and I've gotten hurt pretty bad. Right. I mean, you started racing skateboards in your 30s. Right, professionally. Which is like, that's when most folks are thinking about quitting because of the injuries. Right. So, I mean, the fact that you held it up for that long is not insignificantly impressive. Well, it... After a while, I went through this one period where I still raced every year. Yeah, I know. I, I never have stopped racing, no matter what's happened in my personal life. But I started taking on a, a change um, when I lost my wife. And I think that change profoundly affected my, my uh, professional skating career is because um, I was, my mind was on my four kids yeah. uh, where it should be. Right. Well, you know, that affected me racing because I stopped racing for fun. I was racing pissed off. Okay. And that was a big deal because I wasn't having fun anymore. 
and I was upset with the world, and I was just mad. And, you know, even Max, I would, I'd run right into him just because I wanted somebody to hit me back, you know. Uh, crashing was not even a factor. I didn't care anymore. So that was the beginning of it, really. And I, after a while, I just started losing my competitive edge. Yeah. I wasn't training anymore. I didn't have the... I was so preoccupied with trying to get my kids to where they were getting their legs under them after what had happened. And my mind wasn't right either. I mean, I was a mess for several years, a long time. And then, um, you know, I went to a few races off and on and still love riding my skateboard. But I realized how much time I left, have left on this earth and how much I enjoyed doing that. I also enjoy surfing. And I really enjoy um, snowboarding a lot. And uh, one, you need your legs. The other one, you need your arms. Right. Uh, skateboarding would take both those away from me eventually. Yeah, sure. I protect my head because I was told not to hit the helmet. Occasionally, <laughs> I didn't. At all costs, protect your head. And yeah. it wasn't because it was my head. It was because I couldn't afford to lose the helmet. Right. And, you know, and you'll see a lot of my crashes. Even when I got put on my head at Barrett, You'll see that helmet barely hit the ground, even though I was upside down and the helmet was against the road. It just barely scraped it because I somehow was able to get it up just enough not to hurt it, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's why, you know, um, I'm okay with what's happening now. And uh, I burned out my retirement parties. Right. Because if I said so, I was going to retire, no one would believe me anyway. Right. <laughs> Because it's like me holding a race. Fucking Cludy holding a race? No, I ain't going to that. Right. He may not even show up. Um, I'm kidding about that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm, I just got to the point where I'm basically starting another life right now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like starting over in multiple levels of my life. And a part of that is letting some past things go. And I'm really um, a passionate human being beyond words at points almost annoying um, is that my passion um, sometimes you got to put things away and put them aside to let the past go yeah. and move on with the future like um, James Kelly asked me once at a campfire it's like Cludy when am I going to know when it's time to stop I says aren't you traveling the world right now he goes yeah do that now while you can you'll know There'll be a day you wake up and just get tired of getting on the airplane sleeping in the dirt. That's Damn. all I did. I slept in the dirt. Yeah. I'd fly to Munsville on Friday after work, literally, get there at, I don't know, because of the time difference, you know. Um, I'd get there, race two days. Sunday, I'm on my way home for Monday. Sometimes I'd get home at 5 o'clock in the morning and change my clothes, take a shower and go roof all day. Yeah, I mean... I that's... did it for years and years and years and years. There's a point where that didn't weigh on me. It was a different, for me, the reasoning for not. Well, and you had some, and you had more support at home at that time too, right? Yeah. And that made it easier for you to take off. Yeah. Even if it was still grueling, you know? Yeah, I, I had, I, everything was intact. Yeah. I knew when I came back, they would be there. Right. You know, and I knew I could roof and make the money to do what we had to do because the way I was hustling people for money. Right. I got a hundred bucks from the uh, coach of Notre Dame football at an airport once. Wow, that's pretty good. You know why? I always took my helmet with me. Dude, that conversation a helmet, an instantly. Arrow, an arrow helmet is one of the best conversation starters in the world. They want to know what that is and why you have it. Yep. 
and them guys are just... And, and the answer's pretty cool, so they're always going to ask a follow-up question. It's totally. It's an icebreaker, and, you know, me, if anybody looked at me and asked me about what I was doing, I'm hitting them up for money. <laughs> yeah, we're... You got to make it happen. I, yeah, I, yeah there's, it's not going to happen on its own. It never did. And we're sitting there, and they, they were golfing here in San Diego, going back, and they were drinking, and they were laughing and stuff, and we started talking. And uh, before I left, he's like, ah, come do some gambling, want some money. Here you go, kid. Notre Dame football sponsors you. Go have fun. I love it because you were talking to him about skateboarding. He called you kid, even though you were probably 40. Right, because he was, he was 60. <laughs> right. Yeah. He was like, look at you. He's like, here you go, son. Have a good time Exactly, out there. exactly. And, you know, like, I've gotten thanks, some. Man. I've got four kids, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> well, of course. No, I have four kids, and I'm trying to do this thing for my passion and right. my dream. And, but he, but he, and, he's talking to you like uh, it calls you kid. Right, right, right. It. And I have four. Anything to do with a skateboard is kid. Right. You know, people, when they see somebody that's so passionate, that is driven, they want to help. Yeah, totally. And all it takes is you opening your mouth. And that's something about you, man. I've ever, you know, as long as I've known you, you have lived this. Lived it. And and it it it's was flowing through your veins for an awfully long time. And even and whether or not it still is now is not really important. But you know, you really love this thing, and you put a lot into it, everything for a long time. Long time. And and I totally can respect it, you know, because like I I feel obligated to. To like give you guff about not coming out to Barrett just to hang out, but I understand if if where you're coming from is that you need to let you need to leave it somewhere, so that you can get on with it. That's right. You know I can respect that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So so thank you for telling me that because otherwise I I'd keep poking at you. But uh, Max tried to. Right. And yeah. and you understand that we do that because we yeah. like seeing you. Yeah, you totally. You love me, man. But we can come out and see you on different terms. You know, it doesn't need to be attached to that anymore. And that was, uh, that's nice because, you know, I wasn't the champion. I wasn't the guy that smoked everybody. You know, I, I wasn't that, you know, bigger than life storyline champion. You know, no one's ever called me the champion. You know, I was Cluteville, Rick Clutie. I was competitive, though. Yeah, oh no, you were there for a long time. And I was there when guys dropped out for 15 years and came back and all of a sudden they get a podium, you know. It's like, I never stopped, right. even through injuries. I broke my leg in Seattle. For, I, I tore my bone from my ankle to my knee. I was racing the next season. So I raced that season, healed before the next one started. I mean, I've been busted up hard, broken ribs, uh, dislocated both shoulders. Um, never had a concussion, though. Um, <laughs> no, never had a concussion or never been diagnosed with a concussion? Never had a concussion. Well, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, racing my skateboard. I've had multiple ones. Because I, I I've, like, I've never been diagnosed with any sexually transmitted diseases. Well, I mean, if you're talking to me now, I have a concussion, dude. I mean, that's just... You know, my brain don't work anymore because I've hit my head too many times. Oh, did I say that? But no concussions. No concussions. Okay. Not racing no the skateboard. Concussions racing the skateboard. the skateboard. That's right. Okay. Many on the other realms of life. So. Okay. So that's where I'm kind of going with my life with skateboards. I'm not going to retire. It's just that, you know, I'm getting tired of being hurt. Yeah. And now I'm healthy. I'm really healthy for the first time in decades. First every, time basically since you started racing. 
since I started racing. Because every <laughs> year I've crashed and hurt myself. Yep. Um, I've dislocated both shoulders. I've broken four or five ribs, cracked at least two, um, tailbone, uh, splintered my leg all the way to my knee. Um, tailbone's rough, man. I think that's about it. That's not, but I, multiple times. So. That's plenty. Yeah. So it's all good stuff, and you know, a, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff with the history of the sport where we're at today I like to be able to share with people how it got there yeah you know the progression because you were there for a really big swath of it and it was huge changes too. huge changes yeah I mean because you got to look at it even Goldwing these guys like the Hudson and you know those guys that did their thing I still haven't seen anything written about any rankings or any races they had back in the day. Right, I can't find any documentation on that stuff. You know, it's like 350 races straight. And where's the list? Right. You know? Um, I've never seen any of the races that there, other than Laguna Sega, yeah. which I was blessed enough to get to ride that. I actually jumped the fence. I was doing a job there, and I jumped the fence. They were actually they were doing cars. They were doing uh, practice. And you just like just poached well, around yeah, the what, wrong way. Kinda. It's what I on did. That track one direction. I stashed my gear by the tires. Okay. Because they have stacked tires there yeah. and then the fence. I stashed my gear there. I went and found the trailer where people were in it. And I told them what I wanted to do, but I saw there's cars there. Well, no, you can't do that. Okay, cool. So I went to another trailer and talked to them. And one guy's like, what do you want to do? I go, what? I just, you know, it's been a passion for all my whole life, and I've been here for a long time. I just want to ride that one stretch one time. But I see there's cars on the track. He goes, well, they just got off the track. They're done for the night. And so there's no one on the track. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm positive. The track's clear, but you can't do it. It's illegal. You'll be trespassing. Okay, cool. Thanks. I went and got my stuff, hopped that fence, bombed that hill, got my stuff, and left. I got to do it. Awesome. And then they let me race it. Um, um, they had a race with standard trucks and all that. Yeah, yeah. I got to race it then, too. Awesome. So I actually got to race that part of it, which was super, super fun. I enjoyed that very much. So they had skateboard trucks. Our gear was, you know, prehistoric kind of to your gear today. Yeah. But their gear was like just skateboard trucks. Right. I mean, they were handling it. Well, and the boards were like... Yeah, and they were tiny. They were handling it back then. Yeah. So I give them props. No, I told I told Roger that that like having ridden that hill, and I've actually ridden his board from that race, and it's a lunch tray. It's tiny. That it was not like it would it would be very hard for me now to ride their setups then as fast as they rode them. Right. They were really good at what they were doing. Yes. Just as as you guys were in the '90s and 2000s, you were at the cutting edge of riding styles, technology, everything. And it switched like a light bulb yeah, just overnight. Because these guys who were racing on the East Coast, you know, again, I was bombing hills in North Carolina on a three-foot oak uh, Gordon Smith uh, longboard in the Blue Ridge Mountains with my older brother behind me in a Chevrolet. And he clocked me at 63 barefoot, no shirt. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the record at the time was set at 53. Right. I was like 15 years old, 
16 at the time, something like that. But, you know, what they show here and they glorify on the West Coast, yeah. they glorify the whole scene. Well, yeah, because it's, like, it's like been a hotbed for skateboarding and so many things came out of it as a result. Correct. Just because of the, like, the topography, so the, the landscape and the roads and the fact right. that there's pavement everywhere. Right. And the weather. It's the weather. That's why skateboarding just happens here because it never takes a break. Right. Southern California is definitely the hub of skateboarding. Yeah, for a reason. And it has been for it years. It had to happen here. It couldn't happen right. anywhere else. And for us back there, you know, I never knew a lot of this existed, but I was doing it as a child. Right. I mean, it was in my blood. I mean, all this, I think, was to happen for a reason. I have no idea what that may have been. But. <laughs> hey, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't speak a word against that. I'd say if anybody was meant to find this and do this, it was you, so... And I'm very grateful. I mean, a country guy from North Carolina that grew up in a mobile home to get to travel to Brazil, Australia, you know, uh, Quebec. Right, all over the United States. All over the United States because I was Captain America. So, so many trips, so much fun. I'm lucky I'm alive. I feel blessed that I'm alive and well and sharing these memories with you two guys. Oh, thank you so much. Because other than that, I would never share this with really anyone. I mean, this is stuff I take this personal that I just, you know, I have all these memories and I don't, I don't remember stuff. You know, it's just stuff that happened that's in the back of the, you know, the shelf, so to speak, in the yeah. library. But from the second I saw you two guys, there's just been a flood of all these things I did. It's like, oh my God, I remember that one. Um, I've raced probably It's hard to say when you compare it to anything else, but I have probably literally raced more races than anyone on the planet. Yeah, from that, that could be The career that I've had in the yeah. time frame of me racing, because, you know, at one point, if there was a race, I was at it. If it was... You, done, you think you've done more than 283? <laughs> no, I could never beat that. <laughs> okay. No, 300 and something, Excuse actually. me. Yeah. So you don't think you've done more than that? No, I don't okay. think I've... So maybe that. second most. Oh, maybe second most. <laughs> okay. Maybe third. Unverified. We don't know. We don't know, do we? So, you know, it was very difficult to finally make peace with getting off the competition trail. Yeah. I mean, bombing hills is one thing. Like, you guys call it free riding today. Right. I mean, just go out. Like, you, you never I've have never to quit, ridden, you know. I've never ridden a hill just to ride a hill carving and just like playing yeah. in my entire career until toward the very end. Yeah. Um, I, you know, a couple of hills I just bombed because I you know, was bored. But other than that, I have never, ever ridden a hill not wide frigging open. Full tuck, hold my breath, whole thing. Because every time I did it, I was training for an event. And if you, you ride like you race, Gary Hardwick used to tell me that all the time. Clutie, you ride like you race. Dude, if you're going to ride like this, you're never going to compete. Right. You don't fan out and you goof off and fast. dance on your skateboard. You full tuck boogie it. And our whole thing was, our goal on every hill is to full tuck it. Not grabbing your rail, not sliding, full tucking it. 50-50, you were going to make possible. it. Yeah. Yeah. But we always tried. Right. And then when we hit the ground hard enough, we kind of stopped that and started negotiating it. You know. But we always gave it that attempt. Because that's the whole goal, is to bomb the hill full tuck boogie. No fanning out, no moving your hands, no shifting your feet around. 
No looking up and down, nothing. One little flinch and you're slow. Yeah, totally. Anything. Like all the guys now, they get down on these turns and they bend their knees and they do this surfer thing with their arms all out in a race. I'm sorry, if that didn't slow you down, nothing's going to. You know? So. Well, this has been perfect. Thank you so much. Oh, I was happy, happy to do it. I'm glad you guys came out, and um, you know, it was a fun conversation. Thank you, and thank you very much for giving for giving it to us because this is just the best, and it's it will always warm my little heart to see you get excited about skating. You know, even if you're not doing it anymore, I still I, have the excitement. You're not, you're not over it, you know. No, I it's don't. still around. It's going to be very difficult for me to ever completely be over it. But you can be a fan for as long as you want. You, you know? know, who knows? Maybe they'll one day. Maybe they'll repay Barrett. They'll have a, a, a seniors race on a straight hill, like the Benelli Hill, something to that regard, even if it's a little longer, mm-hmm. where you have your geriatric race and you have some guys come out of the woodwork to race Cludie Man geriatric style. All right. You, know, you can write the rules for whatever that is. Well, you'd have, you'd have ramps at the top. You're not allowed to kick no off. Okay. You just got to let go, ride down the ramp, and race. All right. Everybody's on the, work that, that way, if I had a cane still, I wouldn't have to worry about kicking. I'd just stay on my board and cruise. But it's been a lot of fun, and I, I really enjoy doing this. So, um, and then the one other question I got to ask, and this is inquiring minds want to know. When you are typing on the Internet, uh-huh. do you mean to put ones with your exclamation points, or are you just, like, too excited? Now I put the one there. Okay, so that's on purpose now, but it wasn't always? No. Okay. Um, you just got to understand, when all this was going down, it was NCDSA. Yeah, I know. I've and, been there the whole and, time. And I've, been, computer... I've been watching you type ones and exclamation points, <laughs> you know, for a long time now. Right, right, right. Well, the reason that is, is that when I, I, I was a roofer. I was okay. computer savvy. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize there was a cap button. So everything I typed was in caps. And okay. that part of it was right beside one I wanted to hit. So when I hit it, the, the keys were sticking. Okay. So as the keys stuck, it kept going. And I panicked and I hit the one. It was out of pure panic. And this but happened, then I like, sent it. This happened the same way every time for like 10 years. Yes. Every time. And, but now it's part of your identity and you have to keep it going. I, I think that it is. I, I can't explain to you. Oh, no, I've, like, I, I, I've never not done that. But like this is, the, the truth is so much better than speculation. <laughs> Thank you. It was an accident to begin with. But, it's, but now it's for possible. Now I have a computer that works. Right. And um, it's my excitement level. And it's always one. <laughs> All right. That's a perfect <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm so honored to have gotten this down, and this is the and this scrapbook full of photos is priceless. So, thank you so much for your contribution and everything. And, no, I'm, and this won't be the last time. I was happy to do it, and I'm really relieved that um, we talked about fun stuff that I you know enjoy very much. And you know, you get me talking about speedboarding, and my excitement level is always there. Oh, yeah. Brother, I, I wasn't worried so about that. Very super stoked that um, I was able to remember some things for you. Yeah. So that was cool. Well, thanks a lot, Rick.